Today's episode is brought to you by our good friends and sponsors of the podcast, Manscaped. Cheers to 2022 and resolutions that you can actually keep. How about upgrading your grooming routine for the new year? Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to make the ball drop into 2022 the cleanest one ever. Set your first New Year's resolution with good intentions and join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our exclusive offer. Simply go to manscaped.com, use the promo code GWC, and you automatically get 20% off and everyone's favorite, free shipping. Once again, Manscaped.com, search those wonderful products, use the promo code GWC for this program, Grappling with Canada, and you get your 20% off, and everyone's favorite, free shipping. In this season of Grappling with Canada, we're set to deliver you 11 incredible tales from Canadian history. Tonight, we travel to my hometown, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, as we take a deep dive look at the life, legacy, career, and art of one of professional wrestling's most impressive and unfortunately most forgotten wrestlers in history, George Gordienko. Happy New Year! And more importantly, hello everyone and... To Season 2 of Grappling with Canada. As with Season 1, I am your host, The Taxman, and I'm excited beyond words for a brand new season of Grappling with Canada and a brand new season of some incredible stories from Canadian history that I'm going to be sharing with you guys as we proceed over the next 12 months of 2022. Hopefully... A much better year than we had in 2021. I hope that everybody had a tremendous holidays. I hope you all had a fantastic new year. I hope you're not feeling the effects too, too much. Although, there will be enough time in this program for you to rest up, recover, and learn something about one of, in my opinion, the most incredible people that I've had the pleasure of researching, to be quite frank, in the entire context of doing Grappling with Canada thus far. 
And uh, as I have been impressed over last year's subject matters that we covered, I have to say, I think we're going to top ourselves this year. And there is honestly no better way to start than with tonight's subject matter. But before we get into all of that, I want to say thank you to everybody who were who has listened to me talk. That's the way to kick off the second season of this program. I want to thank everybody for checking us out on season one. If this is your first time joining the program, welcome. Uh, we have 12 tremendous episodes from our first season of Grappling with Canada. Uh, we cover the gambit from Stu Hart to Archie the Mongolian Stomper to Gail Kim to Rhonda Singh to Pat Patterson and all stages in between. So you can go back in the archives and you can check out all those episodes and by the way just so everybody is clear these episodes will always remain free the price is right folks you heard it here there's no way that i would ever think to you know put it behind a paywall or monetize these programs because i think that this is information that uh not just wrestling fans but canadian history buffs and people who want to learn more about the people who shaped this country and shaped our country's role in the international markets. These are stories that uh, that really touch everybody. And they will never be put behind a paywall. They're easily accessible on any podcast platform if you're choosing, whether that's Spotify, iTunes, Good Pods, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, find, or steal your favorite podcasts you will find Grappling with Canada. While you're finding this program, please remember to leave a five-star rating and review. I had a couple of those that were left over the holiday season that I will be getting to later on in this program. I also have, unfortunately, a little bit of controversy stemming from Season 1 that I will also be addressing later on in the program this morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on where you're listening to this program and wherever you are in this wide, wonderful world. And by the way, thank you for joining me today. You could have been doing anything else possible, really, outside of listening to this program, but you chose to make a choice to listen to Grappling with Canada. You chose to listen to the Taxman, and trust me, you will not be disappointed. I'm going to be delivering one hell of an episode today on fellow Winnipegger, really, and somebody who I didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about, and for reasons that we're going to dig into this program, I am uh, smacking myself a little bit for not knowing more about before I started this program, but I'm so glad to be doing this program today on the incomparable George Gordienko, and I don't use that term lightly, and I think by the end of this program today, you're going to understand why I am fully choosing that term to use today. And uh, I think that uh, it's very fitting. As we move into the program today, I just want to thank our sponsors of the show, Manscaped. Uh, Right now, you can go to manscaped.com, use the promo code GWC. You'll get 20% off and free shipping on anything on the site. Also, if you're anything like me and you're a little bit leery about buying things online because uh, you don't want to get caught with something you really don't like or something that doesn't say what it's going to do, 
I know that I'm I'm very uh, risk adverse to things like that, if you will. If you go onto youtube.com slash C slash six sided podcast, probably about the same time that you are listening to this program, I'm actually going to be posting a unboxing and a reveal video and a demo of how some of the products from Manscaped work. So you can kind of try vicariously before you buy. And uh, it's it's uh, a product that I was very impressed with. And I'm very happy to be having them being Manscaped on board as sponsors of the Grappling with Canada podcast. So once again, if you are interested, and I hope you are because honestly I had a lot of fun making the video. So I hope you guys get a kick about, out of it. Uh, you can go on to youtube.com slash C slash six sided podcast. Go ahead and check out the unboxing and review of the Manscaped products that I had uh, here at the household and uh, make an informed decision. Head on over to manscaped.com and use GWC as that code for 20% off and free shipping. Also want to make mention that you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com, use that pages option, search Grappling with Canada, make sure you come like the Facebook page. You can also come in and join the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. We've had some uh, great uh, conversations that were in there lately, a lot of new members. Uh, This is a departure from the Grappling with Canada Facebook group. Uh, This one is more inclusive for all avenues of uh, Canadian professional wrestling history. So come on in, join the group, join the conversation. Let's have some fun on there. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, instagram.com slash grappling with Canada. You can find me on Twitter at six underscore podcast. You can email me at any time six side pod at gmail.com. There is no numbers, gimmicks or whatever in that straight up letters six side pod at gmail.com and as well you can also reach me on the good pods podcasting app i'm very active on there so if you leave me a message and a nice five-star review i will be sure to get back to you on there now the reason we're all here today to get into our subject matter of george gordianko now before you think that this is going to be some straight up story of this guy from Winnipeg he became a wrestler and that was kind of his whole career you could not be further from the truth there is so much information so much misinformation and a whole conspiracy revolving around George Gordienko that we are going to be covering in today's program to join me in this endeavor tonight I have two incredible guests Marty Goldstein, and the author of the upcoming book, George Gordienko, Canadian wrestler, artist, and renaissance man, the incomparable Steve Verrier. They're going to be joining me on the program today to really get into not only George Gordienko, the wrestler, not only George Gordienko, the man and the artist, we're going to dig into the conspiracy Involving George Gordienko, and I do not use that term lightly. We're also going to be talking about some Winnipeg history, some Winnipeg connections, 
especially between myself and Marty Goldstein, who I had never met, to be quite frank, before this program. And uh, I was absolutely blown away. A little backstory. I knew Marty from various other uh, wrestling history programs. I've read a bunch of his articles, whether it's on Slam or whether it's been on his own site. Uh, he also runs a newsletter out of uh, Winnipeg here. So I've been familiar with Marty over the years, but we've never actually met. And I think what we got of, out of our conversation, out of our joint experiences from living here in Winnipeg, him being from the North End, and myself being a few generations younger, but also understanding what the North End means to Winnipeg, what Winnipeg means to Manitoba, and how that all focuses in on the story of George Gordienko, I think is going to open a lot of people's eyes. So, before we get into all that, we'll discuss a little bit of George Gordienko, and then I'm going to kick it over to my conversation with Marty Goldstein. So... For a quick introduction for those who are not familiar, George Gordienko was born January 7th, 1928 in the North End or in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. By the age of 17, Gordienko had received numerous awards for his physical prowess, something that we're going to get into later on in this episode. He wrestled from the mid-1940s to the mid-1970s. And was, according to Luthez and many other experts around the wrestling world, one of the top legitimate wrestlers in the entire world. He was rated the best heavyweight wrestler in the United Kingdom in the 1960s and won the prestigious annual Royal Albert Hall Tournament in London in 1970. After he retired from wrestling, he ended up becoming a very successful artist, which we are also going to be touching in this episode. Although art is something that really transcends his entire career. Again, something that we're going to further explore in this episode today. So without further ado, as we explore the life, the early life, and the history of early Winnipeg, I'm going to bring in my very special guest, Marty Goldstein. All right, everyone, I'm very happy to be joined on the line right now by fellow Winnipegger, Marty Goldstein. Marty, how are you doing? I'm fine, Andy. I'm very uh, glad that you invited me to take part in your program. Absolutely my pleasure. And it's funny, I've, I've heard you on various other uh, wrestling history podcasts in the, in the past, but we've never actually had the pleasure of talking before this, so this is going to be a real treat for myself. I, I very much appreciate that, and I, I want to say at the outset, I appreciate what you do to try to uh, uh, preserve and promote the history of, of Canadian professional wrestling. It's uh, a cause that's been very central to, uh, uh, well, I mean, granted, uh, some, some of my relatives, I'm sure, would say that I've wasted my time, uh, you, know, <laughs> sort of, you know, sort of uh, piffled in a way, but it's been very central to, uh, to my existence for uh, well over 30 years now. Uh, the the uh, I made an argument long ago in battling with governments and their reckless policies towards our industry that uh, professional wrestling, there was a distinct Canadian flavor and style to it. Uh, there was uh, distinct Canadian circuits that built Canadian stars uh, and that it deserved protection as a Canadian cultural industry. 
And as usual with politicians, if they can, you know, pose and get their picture taken with Chris Jericho or Roddy Piper, yes. they're always glad to do that. But to actually do something for the business to help develop the next uh, Chris Jericho or Roddy Piper, uh, you know, that is something that uh, by and large has escaped their, their comprehension because, you know, they're political animals and, and certainly don't have the interest of the athletes or the fans at heart to, in, in, you know, most of how they have approached our industry. And it's funny because they'll, like you said, they'll certainly be around for the handshake or whatever, or in the case just recently out in BC where someone like Kaniski gets inducted finally into the uh, Sports Hall of Fame out there, then it's the talk of, of the local politicians for, you know, that day or that week or whatever in in the local media, and then after that, it's they're nowhere to be found, or they're they're back to their regular scheduled quote-unquote programming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly the case. Uh, uh, in, in regards to to Kaniski and his induction, you know, here in Manitoba, George Gordienko is not an inductee into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. That's an absolute travesty. Some of the clowns uh, that they have uh, uh, admitted as administrators and so-called builders, and for an athlete with the accomplishments of Gordienko to not be uh, included in, in that establishment is a black eye on them. But again, you know, these sports guys, especially these amateur sports people, they uh, they used to have respect for people like Gordienko, people of that generation and what they accomplished. And uh, nowadays uh, they 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 just can't be bothered to to recognize people that were true heroes uh, to to kids growing up in the north end of Winnipeg. So that's something obviously we're going to expand on as we kind of move into our discussion tonight. But before we get into all that, for any listeners who aren't familiar with yourself, Marty, can you give everybody a little insight in regards to uh, yourself and your relationship with professional wrestling? Well, um, let me, let me, and that's a loaded question. I realize. (laughs) It's not really really loaded. It's not really loaded. Let me start with the, with, with where you ended the relationship with professional wrestling. Um, I, grew up in a two-channel universe. If you were lucky, you had uh, a roof antenna like Jim Cornette, uh, where you could pick up wrestling, in our case, from Pemina, North Dakota, from the, an independent McLennan station, KCND. There was wrestling on what was then known as CJAY-TV, the current-day CKY-TV, uh, that was the CTV outlet. And they picked up the syndicated uh, all-star wrestling program out of of Vancouver. Now, I've at different times heard rumors, and I say rumors because I haven't seen any substantiated evidence, that for a time the TV uh, matches to promote the live events, uh, that for a time that they were taped in Winnipeg. Uh, I A couple people have told me this. I, I've just, I've never seen any evidence or an explanation when they would have done it here, who would have done, for instance, the play-by-play as opposed to bicycling the tape out of Vancouver with Ron Morian. Um, this, my first earliest memory of wrestling is, um, you know, one of those peculiar, one of those peculiar childhood things where you wake up and it's, you know, the middle of the night, it's actually only like 11 o'clock or 1130. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to bed at like seven or seven thirty, And I distinctly remember waking up and everybody else was asleep, but the lights, like the kitchen light was on the, living room light was on and I went down the hall and my dad was snoring away on the couch and there was wrestling on TV and this seems to align with um, 
uh, probably around 64, 65, when the All-Star Wrestling tape from Vancouver was shown at, I think it was like 11.15 or 11.30 in Winnipeg on, you know, whatever weeknight it was. And so I sat there and watched, you know, however much of a, of the matches, and my dad sort of woke up, like, whoa, what, what are you doing here? <laughs> Falls me off back to bed. Um, we would watch, on occasion, the uh, that All-Star Wrestling program, which was NWA-centered, NWA-focused. Uh, I remember particularly at my grandparents' house, uh, watching it there, uh, and my earliest memories... I seem to go to about 1966, bridging into 67. I remember Dutch Savage and Don Jardine. I remember the Tolis brothers. Uh, but like Timothy Gahigan, for instance, I don't remember. So in that era of All-Star Wrestling, which had some very strong tag team competition, and this is just just before Kaniski took the world championship from Luthez. Yes. Just before. Uh, so that's my earliest memory. And I didn't become aware of AWA Wrestling until... Uh, it was the fall, like September of, I guess, 1967, probably. And I, the AWA had returned to the Winnipeg market. They had lost the promotional war and had been absent from here for a couple of years. And uh, when they started coming back, they were using uh, to, you know, try to try to jack the cards up a little. They were using guys coming in from Vancouver that were already familiar to the fans from the Vancouver TV. So for instance, Don Leo, Jonathan, John Tolis, I think John and Chris Tolis made an appearance here against, if I remember correctly, against Hennigan race. Wow. Uh, then they got their, their own tape, you know, their, their own production on uh, through this independent channel that you can only pick up with the uh, very well aimed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> rooftop antennas. Uh, and I became aware of these other, uh, these other wrestlers, this other wrestling. Uh, then the first thing that I became familiar with was actually the Crusher, because there's an argument on the playground: who was stronger, the Crusher or Don Leo Jonathan? And of course, I couldn't believe anybody was stronger than Don Leo Jonathan. <laughs> uh, and so we, you know, I guess prevailed upon our parental units to, at whatever time it would have been on, some inconvenient time, you know, nine o'clock on Friday night or on Saturdays or whatever, five thirty, five o'clock Saturdays to start tuning in the AWA. So I was familiar with the Vancouver wrestling, the Vancouver wrestlers. Some of them then came into the AWA and I already knew who they were. Uh, Bruce Kirk, Dutch Savage, for instance. Um, there, uh, I wasn't familiar at that time with the concept of local wrestling. Uh, there were other names that I had heard of that hadn't necessarily seen, seen but heard about from my not, I wouldn't say my grandparents, but around my grandparents' house, my aunt or my my uncle, they were about ten years older than me, uh, and and so I knew the name Yukon Eric. I knew ki- the name Killer Kowalski, uh, Whipper Watson. Yes, was Whipper Watson in my grandparents' house, and uh, uh, which translated basically to you know my upbringing. That was already. Uh, uh, you know, like Whipper Watson was a Canadian hero, even though I, you know, there was, had never seen him. We never, there was no film around. Nobody was replaying old Whipper Watson matches, but he was well known. And one of the other names that was well known to me as a child 
just starting to follow wrestling was George Gordienko. So to bring this to the point of how I've ended up in this position with uh, in in this uh, position on your program was the first live event with much arm twisting and other remonstrations. I think that was the word. Uh, <laughs> Begging and pleading and everything else. Was to uh, the first live event I went to had George Gordienko in a an extraordinarily rare at that point in his career Winnipeg appearance. Wow. And and so I don't even know if I told you that. Uh, previously, that, that he was on the first card I went to. I had no idea. No, we never discussed that. That's why I've got to think for George Gordienko. As a matter of fact, just to, uh, probably something else I hadn't told you, one of the, it's really the only piece of art that I really owned uh, outside of some Judaic, uh, you know, uh, 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 traditional um, paintings of, of Jewish life in Europe or, or from Israel or something. And I don't really have a lot of those. Those sort of got, you know, I don't want to say dumped on me, but stuff you pick up uh, along the way from people. You 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 uh, gratefully procured them along your journeys. Uh, I've got a lot of gifts in my day. (laughs) Uh, And I, the only piece of art that I actually own is right behind my desk. It's actually appeared in some of the the uh, Zoom calls and interviews that I've done, and it's a painting by George Cordianco that I got for my birthday a couple of years ago uh, i think it was called these old boots it's a yes i know that picture i know exactly what you're talking about i got it that's unbelievable <laughs> There's 399 prints and i've got number 18 unbelievable it just give me a second my, i know i faded here i'm gonna put it away because i pulled it up to take a look at it and i don't want to wreck it all right, there. So, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a shelf that I haven't organized very well. It's falling apart as we talk. And it's got, a, it's got my autograph from uh, Frank Gorshin on it and an autograph Angelo Mosca and some family stuff. And uh, there's the Gordienko painting by George Gordienko of his old boots. That's incredible. So, so when I started watching wrestling I already knew this legend of Gordienko from the North End because I was the North End kid as well and that brings us to another and obviously we're going to be you know discussing in great detail about George and and the the Winnipeg relationship but even more than that for people who aren't like you and I can talk you know North End we can talk San Patel Transcona whatever we know what we're discussing but for people who don't live here, they don't understand the different types of neighborhoods and the neighborhood flavors yeah. that existed, especially back then. Can you give everybody kind of a back backstory about what the North End was like during the, the age when Gordianka was coming up? I'm, I'm firstly drawn to tell a joke. You're familiar, Alex, with Peter Young? Yes. He was, he was a sportscaster. He was a sportscaster for the local CTV outlet. And one year in 1975 or 76, when the Winnipeg Jets the WHA version were in full full international throttle. They had uh, loaded the roster with Finns and Swedes and other such things. And uh, so uh, Peter Young for Christmas one year, uh, he had different players, you know, skate up to the camera with Christmas music in the background, you know, bringing greetings in their native tongue uh, to the to the viewing audience. 
So there was like, let's say, Anders Hedberg in Swedish and Hexi Ria Ranter, Veli Pekka Kotoler, Kurt Larson in Finnish. Finn, Finnish. And, uh, uh, and uh, Normie Bowden, uh, I think is a good guess, would have brought greetings in French. And they cut back to the studio at the end of this item. And, and Peter Young says, Joe Daly offered to bring greetings from the North End. So we decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And that is what he was famous for, was being this 
great, not, not, not just a weightlifter, but he's a great athlete. And this guy was like the strongest guy around and, and a gentleman. It was also known to me as a child. Uh, and I guess it was probably in the course of a discussion again, around my grandparents' house, there's very little around my parents' house, very little wrestling related material. There's my dad had an encyclopedia set from 1938. I wish I knew where it ended up. And the wrestling section had a picture of Bill Longson delivering a pile driver. Wow. So it had a view of professional wrestling that was not exactly a hugely elaborate uh, section. Uh, but there was that. There was the, my grandparents had the world, what was it, the World Book Encyclopedias, I guess. Okay, yeah. And that was from just from 57, 58. And again, I wish I knew where those had gone. Uh, just the, the early stages of the space race. So, you know, I'm reading about the space race. I'm reading about Canada, about Israel, uh, hockey. And, of course, I go to the wrestling section, which, also, which was also rather short and intimated that, uh, you know, that the promotional games dictated there was different champions in different places. And it was probably around that, uh, you know, garnering that knowledge that I would have raised the question of, of you know, Gordienko, I probably would have raised, actually, in conjunction with Roy McClarty, another great star from Winnipeg, who was on the Vancouver TV at that point, but very much in the uh, sunset days of his career. Uh, so these were the two most famous Winnipeg wrestlers that I knew of. I hadn't, at that stage, heard of, uh, uh, you know, like Moose Morowski, who had just started out going on the road. Uh, the guys, Jack Taylor was too far back. Yes. Uh who was the other guy? Steve, Steve Kovac, Steve Kozak. Uh, the name might've popped up. Like I knew the name, uh, Alex Turk, the promoter, but in relation to Gordienko, his name would have come up, I think, you know, as uh, well, what, you know, comparing him to McClarty. And, and I learned that, well, you know, Gordienko is a communist. Now in the North end of Winnipeg, although I made a bit of a career, uh, mark in my career by being, uh, in terms of news and, and public affairs commentary of being very anti-communist, being a communist in the North End of Winnipeg wasn't that the worst thing going. It certainly wasn't, you know, there we didn't exactly have McCarthyism going on here because the communists that came from the labor background, which would have been the, the Jews from the old country, the Ukrainians from the old country, that was, I don't know how to put it, that was tolerable because they weren't going to control the actual purse strings of the province or the national government. And at the school board level, Joe Zukin, who was a venerated Winnipegger, biggest funeral Winnipeg, it might have been the biggest funeral in Winnipeg in the, in the 20th century, was when Councillor Zukin, he became a city councillor after being a school trustee, and he was a lawyer, and he was very much a for-the-people-of-the-people kind of guy. So even though Joe Zukin was an avowed communist, nobody looked at him like he was out to wreck our lives. Yes. He wasn't an ideologue. His sister, Ann Roth, uh, created the... Uh, she created the Mount Carmel Clinic, if I'm remembering correctly, and so which still know, exists today as well. And I think I I think they might have invented the whole concept of the school lunch. Um, I'm a little rusty on this part of history. The point is that Gordienko being communist didn't freak me out because it was like he was one of those again. This 1967-68. He was one of those Russian commies. Yeah, he was a homegrown commie. It's like oh, <laughs> and so. I learned that because he was a communist, he fell into the realm of uh, the uh, era of, of uh, McCarthy's Crusades and was thereafter uh, 
spent his career, you know, in Europe and doing other things. So here I am, eight years old, and uh, the the first I've been watching wrestling like a couple of months. The AWA wrestling, I want to make clear, for a couple of months, perhaps. Um, because I remember seeing Larry Hennig's first match back uh, from his, uh, well, he had surgery, but they put it over as an injury at the hands of Vern Gagne, and he reformed his team with Harley Race. And I was one of the few human beings lucky enough to see Hennig and Race in action. There was a TV match in probably April uh, where uh, uh, Rene Goulet was teamed with Goulet was teamed with, I thought, I thought it was Kenny J. And uh, this is the way I remember it. George Shire or some other expert might have a different memory. But uh, the partner got injured in the first fall. And Bill Watts came out as a substitute partner, which I had never seen. Jeez. Big star coming out to be a substitute partner. Of course, he wipes out Hannigan Race in like, you know, 55 seconds in the second fall. And he's headed to another Oklahoma stampede on whichever one in the third fall. And the next thing you know, Harley Race pulls up brass knuckles and Cowboy Watts is a bloody heap in the ring on the Minneapolis TV show. And now they're bringing this feud, you know, Winnipeg. And I I wanted to see it. Uh, Watts was uh, going to arm himself, as he put it, with a secret part, uh, which was not nearly as good as I hoped. By then, we'd already got the tickets. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and on that card, uh, this was uh, uh, this was at the Winnipeg Auditorium, which was the traditional venue. The, the arena shows were very few and far between after about 1961 or so. Uh, the arena was expensive to run, and you're trying to sell a, a, like a lot of tickets compared to the auditorium, which had a capacity of, I think, oh, 47, 48. I was going to say, I think it was just shy of five. And so uh, I cajoled my father into taking me and my brother, who's an older brother, to this event. And wouldn't you know it on wrestling data, they have the results wrong. Uh Gordy Anko was announced for a match in the mid card against Rene Goulet. Now, of course, Goulet's already been, you know, just been featured as Bill Watts' partner. Yes. I knew who Gordy Anko was like, oh, I got to see this. Yeah. I think it was as much the Gordy Anko match as much as who was Bill Watts going to take his partner. Not because I was expecting a, you know, it's, I, I, I wasn't expecting a, you know, um, how should I put this? Uh, 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 an all-time classic against Rene Goulet, but I wanted to see Gordienko, and I knew Goulet was a very capable hand. Uh, and so on that card, if you want, I can run through the run through the correct results because I was there and wrestling data wasn't. <laughs> I mean, when I look at this, like half the results are wrong. It's just the weirdest thing. Bobby Jones pinned Oris Antonician in the opener. Those were two Winnipeg guys. Oris Antonician was better known as Bill Co Buffalo Bill Cody. Uh, an identity really picked up pretty much after 1968. And Bobby Jones was a, a Parks and Rec, City Winnipeg Parks and Rec manager and a wonderful, a wonderful guy. And he knew how to play uh, typical in that era 
conniving, bad guy, cheating, choke behind the referee's back kind of guy. Uh, he did not permit Boris Dantidish to get very much mileage in the opener and pinned him. Uh, in later years, I met Bobby Jones, and I worked on a few shows with Bill Cody. So right from the beginning, I had this, I don't want to call it destiny. It's probably, I mean, if de- what, what do you call it when destiny is a practical choke? But from the, the opening match, <laughs> I was going to have something with the business. Uh, the, the second match was Luke was, uh, and I, again, they have the order here when I'm looking at it, and that's not how I remember it. I remember the second match being Bordienko and Rene Goulet. And, the, and although the result online claims otherwise, I assure you, George Bordienko pinned Rene Goulet. However, to my horror as an eight-year-old, I just turned eight. This hometown hero, George Bordienko, the idol of all boys in the North End, put both his feet on the ropes to pin Goulet. He's a damn heel. What a cheater. He cheated in his hometown. <laughs> I could not believe it. Uh, the, the, it's just to give you an idea of the other talent that was on the card. So here's Gordienko basically you know, coming home to visit his family, I'd say. And just taking a match on a whim, probably. Well, something like that. He, he, would, he did, I think he did the match the next, the uh, card. I think he might have done the next card as well. Um, a big Luke Brown defeated the Big K, who was one of my favorite wrestlers forevermore. Uh, he he was really um, it doesn't get the credit he's due for his influence in the early days of the AWA as a as a as a big nasty heel. He was an articulate guy, uh, the Big K, and uh, uh, Mick Karsh waxes. Uh, long and poetic about the virtues of the Big K. Uh, he had been a tag team champion. At this point, he's um, you know on the downslide, but doing a you know losing to Luke Brown is was by no means uh, uh, by no means it was uh, you know anything that was uh, uh, you know beneath beneath the guy of his stature. And then the semi final match was Tiny Mills, the Big K's former tag team uh, partner, in when they were AWA. They were the first AWA tag team champion. So just to, to clarify this, I'm seeing Gordienko. I'm seeing uh, Luke Brown, who's a bit of a big deal, and Rene Goulet. I'm seeing Dutch Savage, who I became friends with towards the end of his life, pin Tiny Mills, and it was one of Tiny Mills' last matches. I, he had maybe five matches after this. Wow. And the main event was Hennigan Race against Watts and his secret partner, the mighty Igor, who proved to be... You know, he's kind of mighty, but uh, Mighty Igor was portrayed, you know, his character in the ring was, you know, kind of simple. Yeah. And it was pretty simple to see he was going to get whacked with the brass knuckles <laughs> at some point. And so that was the first live wrestling event I saw. Uh, had George Gordienko on it. And uh, it remains to this day of all the all the matches I've seen, the hockey games I've been, been fortunate to go to, base, Major League Baseball games, uh, CFL games, and I've been to CFL games like three different cities, four different cities or something. And the the seeing George Gordienko live in person as an eight-year-old made a bigger impression on me than than really any of those other any of those other sporting events for me personally. It has stuck with me. It's over 50 years now. Now, for for I yourself, my car keys, but I remember seeing George Gordian. For yourself, it, it, do you feel like that that connection with him because of of growing up in the North End? 
Like yeah, it, yeah, it, it, that real sense of community, right? Hundred percent, and that's that's what is uh, you know paramount to understanding the legend of Gordienko is the the North End venerated its heroes, uh, and uh, because he was a sportsman in an era where where that was so valued, and that he was an artist, and that he was well known to be one of the best wrestlers. This wasn't a guy who confined his activities just to North America, you know, just to working the circuits or the clubs. Uh, he traveled the world uh, uh, as a wrestler, uh, and and you know used that as a as a means to um, further his career in the study of art and his study of painting. And I I have been look when the in the Wrestling Observer. Uh, Hall of Fame ballots. I was voting for George every year until they finally had to pull him off the ballot because his time had come and gone. And that's an absolute shame, too. Well, it's there's so little. There has been so little material of him out there. It's only in the last few years I've seen any film at all uh, of him. It's it's been hard to come by. But Gordy Inkle was a. I mean, he was an artist in the ring too, and this guy was. He, he learned the European style. And so he was one of the few guys using those forearm uppercuts. In uh, you know, in, in, when I saw him, uh, he, he had the European timing. I mean, I could, when I remember back and I look at, um, there's a few odd clips of George on online from Montreal. I've seen a couple of matches where he was a heel in Montreal. And you can see the European nuance. He wasn't just a straight up, you know, North American punch kick kind of guy. Yes. He could wrestle. And uh, uh, even in his his uh, heel run in Montreal, which I find, you know, hilarious, but he understood culturally what was going on. Yeah. The, the Quebecois were entirely nationalist. And here's some, you know, Ukrainian from Western Canada. Well, he's he's no friend of the Quebecois. Yeah. <laughs> Now, so when when you're kind of immersed in wrestling, if you will, to your knowledge, when Gordienko was overseas doing, you know, his international tours, obviously, you know, he was a massive star in Europe, in India, uh, in Australia. Was that reaching back to the North End? Were people talking about Gordienko, this guy from here? Now he's now he's selling out. We, a, we didn't know. India, and we knew about the UK. Uh, I mean, the the, the yeah, it certainly had enough in my community. You had enough Jewish people going back and forth from the UK that you, you could pick up some of the names of the uh, English wrestlers of the era. Uh, you know, the Burt Royals and such, and so we knew about that. And for some reason, we knew about uh, India, but I don't I don't remember hearing about his his time in Australia. Uh, for instance, that would be, and even in Japan, I wasn't that familiar with the time he spent in Japan. Um, I think he's like, did he wrestle in Spain? I think uh, he he his being an internationally accomplished wrestler was known to us. Yes, and I I feel like that would certainly feed more. Again, we're going back to the community aspect of everything, where you know, again, here here's a, a guy from Winnipeg who is immersed in all these various cultures in this close-knit community, 
going abroad to, again, these various cultures, which he would be, you know, somewhat familiar with having his touchstones here in the North End. But like, it's totally different for him, I'm sure, going abroad. And then I'm sure for for the people who, you know, grew up with him, who saw this this individual excel at everything and really make a name for himself and move and move into this international stage. It must've been, geez, so impressive for, for the people around him to see this thing. Oh, and in that era, David, Winnipeg, you know, look, this would be true of any small town. Um, and Winnipeg was more so a small town than a big city in that era. Any small town Canadian boy who, uh, for instance, who played international hockey, who was on a team that went to Europe, went to world championships or something. I mean, that those guys were, again, they were revered. Uh, and and one thing I, I don't think we should skip out is the, George Gordienko in terms of wrestling and professional wrestling, amateur wrestling, he he was coached by Jimmy Trifonov, who, again, I met him when he was a very old man on the Boxing Wrestling Commission, and the aforementioned Steve Kozak and Gordon Nelson, Mr. Wrestling. These guys were all uh, pros in Gordienko's earliest days. Uh, Joe Pazendek from Minnesota. And yes. so he was trained. He was a good, a very good, very, very, very good amateur shooter. But he got trained by some darn tough guys right from the beginning at the age of, I think he broke in, he was like 17, he said. So he's 17, 18, 19. And, and he's working the Minneapolis office. He's working here. Uh, here, here in, in Winnipeg, and not just Winnipeg, they would have gone to Brandon, for instance. Uh, and so, the this is the generation just before Vern Gagne, in terms of who was the, the stars in Minneapolis. Yes, Sabo, Pazendek, I mentioned, uh, Abe Kashi, uh, Dick Rains. There's uh, 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 these were the the stars in Minneapolis that then led to the Vern Gagne era in Minneapolis. And so, I. Uh, Gordienko was, I mean, he was the real deal and, uh, and respected, you know, like all guys of that era, but here's a guy who respected what he did and respected the fans. Uh, and, uh, he, he, the the thing with him though, is he he wasn't a lifer. He, uh, you know, there, and the wrestling business has been like this, I'm sure from time immemorial where there's some people where, this is what they do, and that's all they do. Yes. And when George had, you know, George felt like taking a break, he'd take a break, and then he'd resurface in like San Francisco. Uh, I think he then he uh, ended up in the '54 or something. He went to '53, '54. He went to Calgary, and then he um, he he was supposed to be coming back from Australia. And as as he, I think it was in his college his cauliflower alley speech in whatever year it was, uh, two thousand I believe was that speech. Two thousand, two thousand and one. That he, he cashed his ticket, went to Naples, Italy instead, and and went and, and took the long way home, went studying art in London, and then took a boat back to to Quebec. What's and, been fascinating for me in my research with uh, with Gordienko is exactly what you just said he wasn't a lifer for wrestling wrestling was almost a means to an end right because the the art was his that was his love that's what he really wanted to do and it always seems like you know he's he 
again, I keep referencing these, you know, selling out stadiums in India, for example. These were all, he would do these, make his money, and then, like you just elaborately said, take a break, he'd go do his art, he'd go and, and learn in Italy, or he'd learn in Greece, or whatever. Wrestling to him, in my opinion, and I, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but from everything that I can tell, was he did that as a means to facilitate his art career. Well, yeah, and I don't know how much different it would have been. You know, Luthes had, had recommended him for an NWA title run, I think, instead of, basically in the period, instead of Whipper Watson, the, leading up to the, the, the Watson title reign of 57. And I don't know that, that George would have been any different if he'd taken the, the title for a year. Uh, you know, like Dick Hutton held the NWA title, wasn't overly successful with it, and then he went on. Uh, by 1965-66, Dick Hutton was off doing other things. I think George would have done the same thing. I I, I want to read for for the audience uh, from George's uh, from from uh, George's uh, retrospective, personal retrospective. Uh, after he settled in London, he he wrote there was a lot to take in cultural life on a very high level. France, Germany, Belgium, Spain, Holland, Austria, Greece. I should mention Paris in particular. There are a couple of the boys there who were into paintings and had personal showings. They knew Picasso since he watched wrestling on television and was said to be an avid fan. He was not to be disturbed when the boats were on. Eventually, in my very good fortune, was in the company of the lads who painted, we encountered Picasso and had Picasso and I coffee together. He even insisted on paying. This was a truly a high spot in my life. So, you know, it's notable that that this was so much a focus of George's passions. God knows he would have met many members of royalty, right? In many of these foreign lands, he would have had royalty, uh, high, high ranking political officials, military officials attending some of these matches. There would have been ceremonies. He made a point of mentioning when he met Picasso and what a cool guy Picasso was. And Picasso was a wrestling fan. Yes. Um, one other thing I want to mention about about George is uh, he he um, kept appearing, uh, and especially around 1972 in Winnipeg on AWA cards. So uh, he did a, uh, and I, I'm not sure what he was doing here um, at the time, and it could be because I haven't like cross referenced this. Um, he he might have been um, commuting from Calgary, for instance. Uh, but he did like half a dozen shows in 1972, including, geez, I think it was him and Billy Robinson. Was it him and Robinson against against? Uh, yeah, him and Billy Robinson against Ivan Koloff in the Big K. Wow, there's a tag match. Uh, he defeated. Dusty Rhodes by disqualification in 72. He was in a battle royal, the uh, November battle royal in 72. He was uh, part of, I guess there's 12 guys in it. And that included Mad Dog Bashan, Superstar Graham, Dickie Murdoch, Don Morocco. Jeez. Uh, and, and then he defeated Ivan Koloff at the end of November in 1972 in Winnipeg. That's how strong they kept him in his home market. That he was put over Ivan Koloff. Even even though it's not like George is going to go wrestle, he couldn't wrestle anywhere in the States. Nope. So this was strictly, you know, for local, 
consumption. Uh, and, and, and so this maintained his status as if, uh, first show of 1973, January 73, Rhodes and Murdoch against Gordy Inko and Reggie Parks. And I remember when that was booked, I, I mean, I'm, you know, at that time, I'm like a, 10 years old, 11 years old. It's like, you're not going to see that match anywhere else in the world. And how good must that match have been at Gordy Inko team with Reggie Parks? No kidding. And it, and it's a, Maybe that's one of the biggest, you know, shames as well is that there's no, you know, there's very little f- photographic evidence, even never mind, you know, video evidence of these matches happening. Uh, the, the, there's there, there's next to nothing. Um, you know, in, in 1974, he uh, was back on TV here in this market on the Vancouver tape. And I remembered that clearly, too. I somehow knew that Flash Gordon was George Gordienko. I think, uh, you know, it might have been my brother knew. He had wrestled as, as Flash Gordon in Vancouver at an earlier p- part of his career. And he went into Vancouver, and I think the reason he didn't use his real name there was because he was pursuing uh, his art career, and I think he was already doing shows and such things in Victoria. So I think he wanted some separation between the wrestling side of things and the and the painting side of things. And he had a tremendous run in Vancouver in All-Star Wrestling uh, in 74. Um, he took the Pacific Coast title off of the Brute, off Bugsy McGraw, and the Brute was the best drawing heel Sandor Kovacs ever had in Vancouver. Uh, he took the tag title with the with the who was then called Leo Madrill, a name that Al Madrill hated. <laughs> that was stuck on him by Gene Kaniski because Kaniski had a friend named Leo, so he thought it would be nice to name Madrill. But I remember Leo Madrill like plain as day because he used a flying shoulder block that nobody was using. And Madrill was a young guy at the time and uh, you know Madrill eventually became known as a very sort of irascible sourpuss kind of guy. <laughs> Comer and they teamed him with this old vet and and they took the uh, the tag titles and they were working against guys like uh, Mister like uh, Guy Mitchell when he was Mister X for instance. Yep. Um, Kaniski was surely around from time to time. Uh, uh, so we got to see George on TV probably for about half a year. I think he was on the TV up until I I'm, I'm gonna guess until the spring or the early summer and as flash gordon gordienko in vancouver he was you know way up at the top of the cards doing uh you know whoever the top the top uh, baby faces were don leo jonathan he teamed with don leo and whoever the top heels were that were you know being pushed to the top like buck ramstad or you know coming through for brief little brief little trips uh he was you know like a a, a, a top-ranked guy. The other thing I remember about Flash Gordon was he teamed right at the end of his run in Vancouver with Dan Crawford. Yes, Cowboy Dan Crawford. Who I became friends with later on uh, as well, and later in life. And so th- we, we had this exposure to Gordy Inko here in this market, his home market on the Vancouver TV. We didn't see the Montreal tapes, of which, as I mentioned, there's just a couple 
uh, two or three matches. I think there's a couple of Gordienko matches. I think there's a Gordienko match or two on from George Cannon's tapes from, uh, you know, wherever they were, Windsor probably. And I think Gordienko did do a few matches for, for, uh, for George Cannon, I think. I might be misremembering that because that's right around the time that he would have hung up the boots around 75, 75 or so. Um, but we had, the, the point is that we had um, exposure to George over the years. He was a top-ranked guy in the AWA, uh, you know, kept at the top of the cards. He was on top in Vancouver. And by that stage, he's already not a young guy. He's already been in the game for 20, 25 or so. Yes. Uh, and nobody doubted watching. Nobody looked at George Gordienko like, oh, who's that old guy? It's like, holy crap, it's George Gordienko. So he, he was just looked at as a, as a master. And when I broke into wrestling, which was in 1980, <clears throat> um, Gordienko's name, you know, you say it now to the, the young boys and they, they'll just get a blank look on their face. Same as if you say McClarty and probably the same as if you say, uh, you know, Ricky Hunter, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. These are all Winnipeg guys. Uh, but uh, you could mention Gordienko's name, and these guys, a number of them, had heard of Gordienko from their parents. Yes. Right? Uh, and uh, it was, um, as I said, you know, the fact is a grown-up, the only piece of art I own is a painting by George Gordienko says something. Which is just an incredible, like, again, I think fate is something that we were alluding to earlier, but, you know... Your first live match is, is him, and then and then you're able to follow his kind of career progression, and then you wind up at the end of it all with with the art piece. Uh, there is something that you said it, just in in your last point there that I want to really circle back to is, you know, now you can say the name Gordienko, and and the young generation has no idea who you're talking about, and this is something that. Uh, I'll be honest, I've been extremely disappointed with during my research about Gordienko is the absolute lack of knowledge that I'll plainly say it, we as Winnipeggers have of, of this tremendous individual. Considering, you know, how he came up in Winnipeg, how revered he was during, you know, definitely the 30s into the forties when he, when he was competing in all this, in all the sports. And then obviously with the wrestling connection, like where, where have we had this disconnect of legitimately one of the most preeminent stars in, you know, I'm going to say sporting history to come out of Canada. And we seem to have lost him. We've seemed to have lost that touchstone. Like how did this happen? Well, it happened for two reasons. Number one, he predated the television era. So in Winnipeg, who do people talk about? They talk about Ron Rashley. They talk about Bashan. They talk about the Crusher. Gordienko wasn't on TV here. Uh, the other thing is uh, the, the sporting community, uh, and this would be, and I'm not pointing the finger at Jim Tripanov specifically, Alex Turk, but all those old-timers, those old-time guys, and, uh, I, again, I don't know what the relationships were between George and, and uh, the, uh, Alex Turk or even George and Tomko, though we did work for Tomko uh, and Tomko's little offshoot tours after the EWA shows. Uh, Gordienko, we came, teamed with Piper 
with Roddy Piper early in Piper's career in uh, in Brandon, according to the record books. Um, the, 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 the sports guys should have made a concerted effort to make sure that Gordienko was recognized. But I think another part of it is I don't think George Gordienko was ever, uh, he wasn't a glory hound, you know. Uh, I don't think he ever uh, craved that kind of recognition. But when you look back, when I look back at it, if 1977, Mayor Juba, Steve Juba knew what was what in Winnipeg. And if Steve Juba had said, you know, we should do something to honor George Gordienko, plaque at City Hall or whatever. Yes. Um, that could have been done. There's there's a Winnipeg, there's a, a walk of fame here, if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere. I don't remember if it's in the Forks or in Juba Park. Actually, I think it's in Juba Park by Waterfront Drive near downtown Winnipeg, where it's called the East Exchange District. And that's an example of a place where, you know, they will run to recognize Roddy Piper, uh, and deservedly so, but Gordienko built the house for guys like Piper. Gordienko helped make wrestling a respectable pursuit for athletes in Winnipeg. Right? Guys, to my mind, guys like him and Roy McClarty, and I, this isn't to denigrate any of the other boys that followed in their footsteps, but McClarty... Roy McClarty was a worldwide star, main event on Chicago TV, feuding with Fern Gagne over the sleeper, and Roy McClarty gets the same treatment here, and they sh- they should both, in my opinion, be uh, well remembered and well celebrated. I was I find it odd too, and again, I'm we're not trying to indict the you know Manitoba sports writers or anything like that, but I feel like there's not there's not the concerted effort almost to look in the rearview mirror a little bit of who really shaped Winnipeg and, and, you know, to expand upon that is Manitoba from a sports cultural background, unless they're a hockey player, right? That seems to be the only exception. Uh, Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. Let's, if your audience will tolerate this slight digression, Let's look at the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, for instance. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers' homegrown stars. Um, there was a lot of homegrown stars in the 40s. And these are names that nobody will remember anymore, and they were like guys that were like linemen, you know, 40s and 50s. Yes. Uh, uh, Buddy Tinsley, almost drowned in the Grey Cup in the mud bowl because he's knocked out and was face first in a puddle or something. <laughs> uh, uh, Jerry James was, I think, Jerry's regarded as a Winnipeg guy, but I think Jerry was actually from Saskatchewan. And at the age of like 17 or 18, he was, uh, you know, a starter for the Bombers and a starter for the the Toronto, uh, third or fourth liner, but a starter nonetheless for for the Toronto Maple Leafs in the the 1950s as well. Um, Jerry James doesn't get recognition uh, now the way he, the the way in my opinion he should. Um, I, I, I'd have to think about comparisons with other sports. You know, a few years ago, I was fortunate to be asked to participate in a documentary about Al Sparks. And Al Sparks was, uh, again, good enough to be a contender for world championships uh, out of Winnipeg. And until that documentary, nobody had really talked about Al for years and years. And I had the pleasure of meeting his family and being part of that, uh, being part of that documentary, being part of that film. Uh, and uh, I, that's another good example. Look, look Winnipeg, th- there's good parts about Winnipeg and there's bad parts about Winnipeg. Burton Cummings uh, pointed this out many, many years ago. That Winnipeg has an unfortunate habit of eating its young. 
Yes. Young people to become successful, instead of recognizing them, uh, people are, you know, they act jealous about it. I think a good way to put it. And I I don't know how much of that is behind the negligence uh, towards uh, George's accomplishments in the in the realm of sport, in the realm of art. Uh, but I, I think more so that when the torch should have been picked up for George in the late seventies and early eighties, you know, Jack Matheson didn't do it. Sports editor of the uh, Tribune. Uh, I, nobody picked up on this. Cause I think part of it was none of the sports writers and sportscasters wanted to be seen as being a wrestling fan. Which that's right. such a suggest. Hey, we should honor this great wrestler that came from Winnipeg. You know, I'd be. What do you care about a wrestler for? Well, I'm sure that's part of it. They should because look at who look at who cared about him. Right again, the overseas markets and the point that you made about yeah, Winnipeg eating our young is it still happens today. Unfortunately, that's. Uh, I love this city, but Jesus, we we got a bad habit of that. And I think yes, very bad attitude, very bad attitudes here, uh, and and it's perpetuated by it's perpetuated by a media culture as well. That if the media doesn't build somebody up, uh, they don't want to recognize that they have any genuine accomplishments. Uh, there's there's a lot of factors at play. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's unfortunate. I, if if any if any decent sports writer were to look at uh, even when George went to Japan in, in later in '68, he spent the last I think two months of 1968 in Japan, and he's wrestling Billy Robinson, he's wrestling uh, Kobayashi, uh, Bori, uh, all the top stars, not just the top Japanese stars, but the top uh, Gaijin, the top uh, North. Uh, uh, I, I say, I'm going to say North American. Billy Robbins was from England, but you get the idea. Yes, Asian, I guess is what it would have been. Non-Japanese. Uh, he he wrestled all all the top hands. He was he he was, and to be put in that position meant that he could carry literally carry the ball. You know, if if you compare him to a football player in that era, you know George Gordienko, um he was like a Jim Taylor of the Green Bay Packers, like a full fullback that you that, you know, a hard hitting fullback that you knew was going to deliver the goods, and he could carry he could carry the ball, and he did. I mean, they they, as I said, when you go through his his career accomplishments, you know, a guy a guy can have name value, but you put him in the middle somewhere. Yes. You know? No, George was on top, on top, on top, on top. Not because. Not because of of any, um, how do I put this? He wasn't there because people were doing him favors. He wasn't there because he was friends with people. He was there because he was that damn good. Yes. Yeah. There was no. There was no politics. There was no. He, he was somebody's boy. No. He was. He was the man, and it, the, the people recognized it. I am sure. I am sure that for George Gordienko to appear in many of those foreign lands, especially in that era. And he spent like five or six years in, in Great Britain. He was wrestler of the year in 63. Uh, again, battles against all the top stars uh, from all over the world that went through uh, through the United Kingdom. Uh, 
Gordienko appearing anywhere was a big deal because he was uh, recognized as a top. I'll tell you something. <clears throat> um, you know, I have different opinions than a lot of people do about certain aspects of Canadian wrestling history, Canadian wrestling culture. I've expressed them at different times. For instance, you know, here in Winnipeg, Stampede Wrestling was no deal at all, never mind no big deal. And it, that, you know, that that's true in different parts of the country. If you didn't see the wrestling, you don't know how big it was or wasn't, how good it was or wasn't. But Stampede and Winnipeg wouldn't have drawn two cents. With Dave Rule on top, Stampede wouldn't have drawn two cents. Yes. You're going to compare Dave Rule in this market to Vern Gagne and the Crusher? To bat, you know, Bastine and Lions? Yeah, or... Dr. X? It's... That wasn't going to happen. Stampede was... And even the Vancouver wrestling, there are certain areas where the Vancouver wrestling was very strong. But generally speaking with the exception of a few years, a few summers, you know, where they had a hot period, a lot of guys were coming in. Generally speaking, the Vancouver wrestling was seen as a step down from AWA wrestling. The top stars were top guys. Don Leo, Jonathan, Gene Kaniski, you know, they were on top in the AWA. They're top guys. But then, you know, the, the, the rest of the card as it filled out wasn't always as strong as the undercard of an AW, of, of what the AWA did, yes. especially in like 72, 73, 74, which... Bobby Heenan and Ric Flair both said was the strongest rosters they'd ever been on was the AWA in that era. Might I remind you that Gordienko was around in, in 72 on yes. and 72 in those Winnipeg shots. Um, so, you know, for all the talk people make about Stu Hart, I've never heard anybody. I mean, Stu, I don't want to say was in fear of. He had a healthy respect for who do you have a healthy respect for? Luther Lindsay. Jack Taylor. George Gordienko. Yeah. You know why? Because he knew there'd be none of this day. Just lay down over there with those guys. <laughs> yeah, you lay down over here for a second. We'll see who stretches who. And they tagged together, if I'm not mistaken, in Stampede. Did uh, Stu what? and Gordienko. Stu and George? Yes. Oh, I, I, <laughs> can, my God, can you imagine that where Stu's crowbarring all those poor guys and then he tags in George and says, hey, give him a little something. <laughs> 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 you know what, well, you know what Stu used to say about Whipper Watson? He was, uh, he said about Whipper Watson, hey, he's a little stingy on the returns. You know, didn't, like to, didn't like to sell for people didn't like to make guys look too good there's an example of something I've never heard said about George Gordienko that he didn't do his best to make a match I mean he wanted the matches to look like a contest he was you know from the Luthez school of you know school of wrestling so to speak but I've never heard that Gordienko on you know sputted guys you know stretched them unnecessarily guzzled them I've never heard any of that about George yeah, there's, uh, and again, going through my research, I've never heard one story about, you know, being unprofessional or, you know, you know, the dreaded going into business for himself or and there's nothing. It was always, you know, if he said he was going to do something, he did it. If he was going to make a shot, he did it. Even when he got hurt in uh, Germany and he still had dates to fulfill, 
once he healed up, he went back and finished his dates, right? Like the, that to me speaks more to, you know, this reoccurring well, theme of, of the man, right? It speaks to his character and he had, uh, this is, this, he's the kind of individual who's a throwback to a different era. Let's compare him to other athletes that broke in in the late forties or early or early fifties. Maybe is is another way of of trying to evaluate um, uh, the, the the kind of standing the, the, and not just the standing. These were the expectations for. Uh, for professional athletes uh, in that era, right? So this is, for instance, uh, late 40s, uh, Jackie Robinson, Larry Dolby from the world of baseball. Yes. Well, these guys were all, they were all role models. And they conducted themselves with the, with the media, they conduct themselves with the public. And, they, and I'm not saying this about Bernie Ankle because I have no knowledge. If somebody were to tell me he closed a few bars in his day, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure with the finest scotch. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> but uh, he, I'm sure, when did he break into wrestling? Uh, like the exact. Uh, the exact year was it 40 was it 40 it was i think 47 46 he started in winnipeg they went to san francisco in 47 so i use the example of 1948 stan usual broke in in 1948 this was like the classiest baseball national league outfielder of all time by the way i just inherited a stan musial bat oh a nice little tie in there <laughs> but he broke in the same time as, as athletes like that and he could stand shoulder to shoulder with those kinds of greats and and had earned the had earned the respect of uh you know, listen not just sporting society but he earned the respect of high society yes he did and there's and there's many stories of and this is something that you you had brought up earlier in our conversation but when he's you know on these overseas trips he's not just Yes, he's meeting the fans and all that kind of stuff and, and working with... But he's meeting royalty. He's meeting uh, leaders of state. He's meeting... I think he even wrestled, if I'm not mistaken, he I, and I have to check my notes, but it might have been Sri Lanka, and he wrestled, I think it was, uh, the nephew of their defense minister. And <laughs> I guess he was worried about having to put this guy over because he oh, didn't know yeah. what was going to happen. But, but that... Like, he's not just... Like he, and 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 we mentioned the Picasso thing, right? Like Pablo Picasso wants to meet him, right? What an incredible set of circumstances that whole thing was, regardless. But but the fact that these these influential people from from these other countries around the world want to meet him is crazy. You know, I just I just learned that uh, the George that George Gordienko. Uh, was part of the Parkhurst uh, uh, trading card series, sports cards, uh, and which I didn't realize. And I have some of the Parkhurst cards, by no means a full set, but I have quite a few of them that I, am, um, again, inherited at various 
very, at, at some time in my past and some lucky relative, uh, though I'm the lucky relative now, here's how George was described on the back of the Parker's cards. And, you know, th- these were available across the country, but it was largely a Toronto gimmick, these trading cards. George Gordienko, one of the greatest wrestlers ever produced in Canada. George is rated high by such famous Matt personalities as Ed Don George, Strangler Lewis, and champion Luthez. Powerful and fast, he's an outstanding swimmer, weightlifter, and football player. For crying out loud, when you've got on the back of your trading card, and you got you've got them saying that Ed Don George, Strangler Lewis, and Luthez puts you over as the top of the top of the heap. Yeah, it's, talk about a vote of confidence. That's pff, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's. A fellow of that level of accomplishment and being so little remembered uh, in his hometown is, uh, it's sort of a scandal, but it's uh, definitely uh, uh, something that I i personally uh, would love to see rectified. Many years ago, I talked with Ted Gordienko, his brother, about this and about the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. Around 2004 or so, I may have had Ted on my radio program once. I don't, not sure sure but i i think i tried to get him i don't remember if i did or not um i the the other thing about uh about george is uh, that i want to mention his artwork and i you know i i don't know if you're familiar or if any of your listeners are uh familiar uh with um with this site i'm trying to remember what it's called it's art of deception I think it's Art of Deception. And it's a it's a real strange like it's a real strange uh, real strange website that um, has profiles of uh, of not just like boxers and wrestlers but of It's of, House uh, of Deception, movies. just to clarify. Pardon me? House of Deception. House of yeah. I first came across that years ago and it's got some samples it used to i think it i'm hoping it still does uh uh of george's artwork and and there, there's a, a, a not just a certain quality of life to his paintings but he had very whimsical titles for his paintings yeah so for example he has the one on the site that we're talking about is Carnival, anything can happen, and it's a very abstract, uh, essentially circus scene. But it's like, yes, the, yeah, the performance of the clown spook outside the big top after midnight. It's yes, very Picasso. That's a very Picasso-looking, acid trippy kind of kind of painting with what really looks like doodling on. It's very, uh, and I don't, I'm, I'm not as up to date on the. I shouldn't say up to date. I don't have quite the recollection I did, but it, it's a a certain. It's a, it illustrates a certain style that is, uh, you know, that great popularity. Um, uh, there was never a horse that couldn't be rode. There was never a cowboy that couldn't be thrown. And it's a horse with about six cowboys around it having been bucked off the horse. See, he'd pick up on the weirdest little themes. Yes. Make, uh, you know, almost childlike representations. Uh, it, when I say childlike, I mean in terms of the style of art, 
by no means is this, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's one here. Uh, if you're on the site, can you take a look at Roadhog? I can't seem to pull that one up. I'm looking at, uh, like, where do we have Roadhog? Because Roadhog, when I looked at... Looked oh, at yes, here it is. Now take a look at that, and I'm going to ask you a question about it. Go ahead. Does that not look like a Ren and Stimpy cartoon? It does. It looks like it looks like a Ren and Stimpy cartoon and one of those uh, little toy cars that one of my, my kids used to have one of those. Yes, exactly. So the 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 his work itself is so um, admired within the art world. Uh, there's been uh, even in here's one from Winchester Galleries, which I think was in Vic, in Victoria. I just had an exhibit in February of last of last year, 2020, an amusing life by George Berdyanko. So to this day, his his uh, greatness uh, and and the the enjoyment of his art is still celebrated uh, in uh, within the art world uh, at galleries, etc. I wonder what it would take to get a feature here in Winnipeg, at, like the art gallery. That would be uh, that would be an interesting. You know, it, you know, I. I, I don't personally have any connections at the art gallery, but I think there is, I think it's a worthwhile subject to pursue and see what levers would have to be pulled to accommodate that kind of an exhibition. I can't imagine that. I bet you there's never been a show of George Bernienko's artwork here. I, I, I would, yeah, I would not bet against that. Which, again, and we're filing things under you know, travesties, and there's another one, right? You look, you know what, though? I, I gotta tell you that um, that Stephen Barrier's book that's coming out, that, I think, will give some impetus to the kinds of issues that you and I are discussing. Right? Because when there's a book out there, then you can point to it and show it, to, you know, I can point to it, you can point to it, and show it to city councilors, show it to the Minister of Culture and Sport, uh, and there's, listen, certainly on Winnipeg City Council, there's some wrestling fans. I mean, I know this from my dealings with them over the years. Uh, Brian Mays came to one of our one of our shows in his ward. <laughs> because, because the ring was put in the front yard of somebody's house so he, uh, for a street festival, and he couldn't, he had to, like, come and see it for himself. That's great. <laughs> well, there's no, there was no permit required, no bylaw involved, and then I made sure to put him in the ring and have him talk on the microphone. So yeah. <laughs> Get in the ring, kid. He was implicated, right? <laughs> but I think... The good old days. I think, so... so I, think, I think that Stephen's book, I think, has got... Uh, I, I think that that is, is going to give us a, a kick at the cat. When it comes to seeing what we can do to generate recognition for George, both as a wrestler, both as an athlete, uh, and as an artist in his hometown, uh, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that that's uh, that, that that's the case. Uh, again, I, you know, I I wonder, I wonder if the uh, in the Manitoba Archive Building, if there's any old film 
from the fifties, you know, from the local clubs of the oh. of George. I wonder that. And that would be a fascinating, fascinating uh, little excursion to find out. Well, you know how you know every once in a while these these old film uh, presentations of like you know the for instance uh, we mentioned earlier France. I've seen some of the old matches, the television matches that Picasso would have been watching from Paris, and that the crowd heat. I mean, it's the style's different, but the crowd heat is incredible, and the heels are very neat. Yeah, <laughs> very mean. they were very mean in France. They, they, people hated the heels, uh, especially it seemed the hate the French heels. Um, and so I wonder, similarly to to, uh, I'll give you another example. I've seen a Jack Benz match. I don't remember if it was from France or from England. I think it might have been from France of of, of Jack Benz in his cowboy Jack Benz face. Wow. Uh, and and he would have wrestled with Gordienko uh, in Vancouver. Well, seventy two, seventy three. I think Jack was uh, was uh, uh, there. Uh, but there's another example of an old timer where, where, you know, all people knew of Jack Benz in the modern era was he was that old. I mean, he was old. He was old. Uh, he's that old guy. But he, you know, when you watch Jack, when you watch Les Kellett matches, the old Englishman, when I watch it, I recognize stuff that Jack Benz did that obviously Benz picked up in England. Mm-hmm. No different than Gordienko. These just the little tricks that. Some of it is is sort of comedy, you know. The some of the comedic stuff, uh, little turnarounds and double crosses on holds and funny things on breaks and uh, on rope breaks and such things. So it makes you wonder if if there's some long lost footage of George Gordienko. There's one other thing I want to mention about about Gordienko. Yes, please. That his name was revived. Quite accidentally, quite accidentally, it was revived in 1987, I think it was, on the AWA on ESPN tapes. When they tried to slap together a Russian team, and they had Alexis Smirnoff, uh, who was by then wrestling out of California, they were doing the tapings in Las Vegas. And I don't know who put this together. Paul DeMarco, who had been Lars Anderson's World Tag Team Championship partner in San Francisco around 1971 or so. DeMarco had been, as far as I knew, long retired. And uh, here comes this tag team partner for Alexis Smirnoff called Yuri Gordienko. <laughs> in 1987. I hope somebody got fired for that blunder. No, nobody got fired for, <laughs> for... Well, it was no blunder, but what was interesting was, first of all, you know, in those days in Winnipeg, nobody had a satellite dish. Like, yes. And if they did, they sure in hell weren't watching wrestling. Well, Dave Pinsky's parents, uh, Crybaby Levinsky, Dave Pinsky's parents had a satellite dish. And, of course, you know, he didn't actually, Yorma Mizrahi, my mentor, uh, uh, in community development work and journalism, they both had satellite dishes. So we would go to people's houses and, among other things you're looking for on the satellite dish in those eras, We'd go looking for wrestling. And here on this AWA wrestling tape, here's the guy being called Gordienko. And I damn near fell off my chair. I was like, what? <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm looking. It's like, okay, it, it isn't Gordienko. Jury Gordienko. Yeah. And it was Paul DeMarco. And on one of the matches, I don't remember who the opponents were, the referee dived in to make the finishing count, the, the pin, or check on a submission hold or something. He landed right 
on Gordienko's leg and screwed his leg up. And that might have been the last match for Paul DeMarco as, as Yuri Gordienko. And the ref <laughs> dived in. I think it might have been Nick Bakalinko's brother. And he just dived in. He just, like, landed on the guy's leg. And oh. just, I, I'm watching my language here, but, yo, you just see it messed yeah. up real bad. Real bad. So that was the last time that the name Gordienko, even though it was a bastardized version with a Y, et cetera, et cetera, why they did it, you know, I don't know that I've known anybody that was in the AWA at the time. Like I know I, I've, I've spent time with say, for instance, with Jimmy Brunzel, but Jim wasn't around. He had just left the AWA. And I don't know that I know anybody that was there. Um, uh, that would know if it was, you know, if it was a rip by the office or rip by Vern Gagne, if, if it was, Maybe Smirnoff, I, I'm sure, knew Gordienko from Montreal, from wrestling in Montreal, and maybe he said, hey, we need to, you know, oh, Paul DeMarco would be my partner. We'll have the USSR gimmicks made up. Oh, what are we going to call him? Oh, let's call him Gordienko. Yeah. Maybe that's what it was. <laughs> I've never found I've never found out. I actually haven't. For some reason, I've never even thought about it until basically today um, to try to find out. So his name did live on briefly, sort of, in the late 1980s as the AWA was on the uh, I believe uh, Jesse Ventura would refer to it as the fourth last swirl, fourth to last swirl, uh, going, down <laughs> the, uh, going down the commode. So uh, obviously, I think you and I are both in agreement that uh, you know maybe when the when the book comes out, obviously this program is going to predate the book by about a month. But you know maybe between this program. Uh, the book, which we're going to be discussing in greater detail later on in the program with my very special guest. Uh, hopefully these will kind of get the ball rolling in terms of some much needed recognition for, for Gordienko, not just in Winnipeg. Obviously, I would love to see it really happen here, but in, in Canada as well. Uh, for yourself, what are you kind of looking for in terms of recognition or so, or something something positive to come out of this what would you like to see i if, i've had some a couple of discussions with steven he spoke with me for his kaniski book and i i actually my name actually got into it which impressed my family no end uh i conducted gene kaniski's last radio interview oh no uh, way yes way for canada day uh for cjob as a matter because you're from winnipeg i can i can say it for cjob yes sir i, I was filling in on the nighthawk and, uh, and, uh, Dutch Savage, Dutch helped me line up, uh, an interview with Kaniski. Uh, I, I'm, I, I've had a couple of conversations with, with Stephen. He's a great historian and a great writer. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's in a position because of the time he spent on this where he's going to be able to talk about, you know, George you know, didn't wrestle with Gordienko in other places. In Greece, he was called, he was billed as a Russian. Uh, uh, what was he called? Korienko. So he played characters. He wasn't the, you know, necessarily the Canadian strongman everywhere he went, right? That's right. Uh, and uh, he was, in Greece, uh, an enormous... Uh, an enormous star. Uh, 
uh, and this would be in the era of uh, Spiros Arian, before he left Greece and came to North America. Um, so Stevens got the opportunity to shed light on Gordienko's travels under those different guises. He was in the first cage match in Greece. George was. You think that didn't sell out? Well, he, I'm sure a sellout is a, a bit of an understatement as well. I, I was told that in some of those foreign countries, in particular India, as a child, I'm saying, I was told that he drew enormous crowds. And, and this was, again, because he was a believable grappler. I want to make clear, you know, he was not a high flyer. He was a what he was a grappler. He would slap holds on, and they would work in and out of holds. He hit hard with those forearm uppercuts and shoulder tackles. Uh, he was he made people believe in an era where, you know, most. I'd say most people did, but there were still some that didn't. But, you know, he was like, he was like, he wasn't, uh, I don't want to get, I don't want to suggest he was in any kind of, any kind of a, you know, had any psychopathic tendencies like Johnny Valentine. (laughs) But as much as Johnny Valentine made people believe he was real, George Gordienko made people believe he was real. Oh, yeah. Right? So, I... This to me is uh, is is the opportunity, as I said, that Stephen's book is going to open the door for people to talk about him, to have his name put out there, and then maybe uh, for guys like us that are on the ground here in his hometown to approach a key number of city councilors to start with, maybe uh, certainly the city councilors in the North End, with whom I have a good relationship with all of them, and say now's the time in light of this tremendous uh biography of this uh of this honorable citizen world traveled citizen of our city to show our appreciation to to george and the Bordienko family uh because it's a lot easier to point at a book i'll tell you you know for me to talk to a city councilor uh or for them to talk to me if there's a book uh, or something of that nature because none of them are going to know. Listen, if I was on city council, I'd be the only guy who knew George Gordienko is. I don't think there's a member of the legislature that knows who Gordienko is. There might be, but I'd be surprised. I'm not saying they all should, blah, blah, blah. But uh, he's, you know, if they know who all the Olympic athletes are, and they all know who Roddy Piper is, yeah, they all know who Chris Jericho is, uh, there's an argument to be made that they should know who George Gordienko is. I have to agree 100%. Um, now, before I let you go for the evening tonight, I know we're, we went long, and uh, I, I've been loving this conversation. I, I, I just looked at the clock now, and considering you and I have never had a conversation until you, like, greenlit this call, I, I'm, I'm very, very glad that I was able to, to have this kind of a talk, and, and to... Uh, especially with a, uh, another guy from Winnipeg, like, like you know, we don't know each other, but we share a love of wrestling. We share a love of wrestling history, and we share the belief that wrestling history should be respected. And and more than that, it's it's the people involved who who need to be remembered. And and you know that's 
you know, even going back to season one, right, and where, you know, we did an episode on someone like Jack Taylor, who nobody would know in, in the modern era, right? You talk yeah, that's, about guys that's, like that's Kaniski. Like a, that's like doing a hockey program about Cyclone Taylor. It's strictly a history. Yes, exactly. But uh, and, uh, for for myself, bringing these names up is one thing, but it's it's having guests like you who, you know, are able to also connect what you know, I'm learning and figuring out and researching, and you know, and to have someone like yourself on who's just an absolute treasure trove of information to, to me that that's the real treat of this whole thing. Uh, you know, there's 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 some uh, there's some good resources online uh, about about Gordienko. There's uh, Doug Lunny, my buddy Doug Lunny, wrote a story about George in 2012 uh, for the Winnipeg Sun that's still online that goes over his background uh, and that he was a, a walk-on at the a 16-year-old who walked on a Blue Bomber training camp. Yes. Which, you know, not unheard of, but not very common. Uh, you know, you'd have the odd, I mentioned Jerry James earlier, you'd have the odd teenager get into the CFL, but 16 years old, how strong did Gordy Inko have <laughs> at the age of 16 to go in a, you know, two-a-day workout with a even with it, and, and granted, at that time, CFL football was, as Scott Taylor has pointed out to me, it was more like rugby than it was yes. like football. But, you know, a 16-year-old playing rugby with grown men was also not the most... Yeah, exactly. Common, right? And and even then, in Lenny's column, Vance Nevada made the point that the Vandalus Sports Hall of Fame should recognize, uh, should recognize George. And... and uh, uh, and put him in the Hall of Fame, and so this this has been talked about among uh, people like Vance, uh, who's a respected historian, and and who I've known for pushing thirty years now. It's hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> uh, those of us that are in the know here locally, we well understand this. And as I said, uh, and I know that that I know Vance, who's got his own book coming out, that I'm sure we'll have some additional discussion about uh, Gordienko. Uh, his own book, an update about wrestling in Western Canada. But, uh, you know, people like myself, people like Vance, uh, people like yourself, we're in a position, thanks to the work of, of Stephen uh, and putting together this, this great book, it's going to give us another kick at the caps, and I'll be talking with Vance about it. I'm sure I'll be talking to you as well, Andy. And uh, we just may have to coordinate our efforts uh, to make sure that City Hall um, uh, is made to pay attention to to the obligation the city has to to recognize uh, and uh, and show appreciation for uh, for George Gordienko. I can't think of a more perfect way to uh, to end the sentiment of this evening. Uh, listen, Marty, tonight was an absolute pleasure. I'm going to have to have you on again. I hope I can twist your arm. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll have to offer up, offer up a uh, North End cocktail to uh, get you back on the program again. <laughs> I, well, the traditional North End cocktails, I generally don't uh, partake of. I'm more of a Dr. Pepper guy, but I appreciate the thought. <laughs> one other thing, what, what, in, in, in regards to that, one thing I will mention to you, and I, I this is sort of in passing, I, I've been... The last year uh, of my life has been, oh, it's been different for, you know, for everybody the last couple of years. Yes. I've gotten increasingly busy with uh, not so much with Premier Championship Wrestling that opened the door to my um, participating 
on wrestling events after quite an absence around 2014, 2015. Uh, and I've done a number of shows with CCW and on, on events that Kenny Omega appeared on. But in particular with uh, CWE, uh, Canada's Wrestling Elite, and uh, 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 a promotion run by Danny Duggan. Uh, and in the last year, especially the last, uh, because of the, the other work I've done, I've been up covering like three wars and two elections in the last year. Uh, I've not as, uh, enough time or as much time for my own hobby, so to speak. You know, wrestling, read, writing wrestling articles, wrestling research. I still owe Greg Oliver an article. Uh, <laughs> Many of us do, one, yes. <laughs> one thing I wanted to, to, to work on that I am going to be working on sometime soon as we record this is, uh, you know, I listened to George Shire uh, was a guest on a podcast, but I'm a Black Jack Lanza. And I noticed this at first with, when Dr. X passed away, when the uh, 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 the the incredible sensational destroyer the intelligent sensational destroyer uh passed away uh, dick buyer that guys like buyer guys like lanza uh similar to what i described of george making shots in winnipeg through 72 and 73 and having his little program up on the side with ivan koloff uh these guys had um you know very distinct matchups and very distinct career paths in Winnipeg as well. Uh, and so uh, I, I, at first I noticed that with Dr. X, but I would be interested in doing a program sometime coming on and discussing Blackjack Lanza specific to his time in Winnipeg. Because he had about four different eras here. The, you know, the earlier part of his career when he was a cowboy babyface, And then when he came back in as a, uh, as a top the most hated heel uh, in 70, 71, 72. Then he came back in 75, 76, I think 76, 77 as part of a tag with Bobby Duncan. And then uh, 1981, 82, he had been out of wrestling, I think for a year or two, and then came back in for his last run through the AWA. And there are many significant matches in Jack Lance's career that occurred in Winnipeg. And that hasn't really been discussed. Uh, too much. I think that's uh, the kind of topic that guys like you and I should be addressing because Winnipeg has its own unique wrestling history, not in terms of, not only in terms of the Winnipeg promotions and the stories about Tomko, the stories about Alex Turk, the stories about, uh, you know, Candelo or, or such things, but just in terms of the, what the AWA would put on, the programming here was different than it was, it wasn't always the same programming here as what we got, what we saw being promoted in Minneapolis. It wasn't the same matches, matchups necessarily. You know, you, you could do things a little differently. Uh, you know, Duluth, Minnesota was the same thing. Duluth once had a match, 68 or 69, between Mad Dog Bashan and Dr. X. If they had put that on in the Winnipeg Arena, that would have sold out. Yes. Right? But they just had one, One, you know, they're screwing around. They, You know, the, you know who's available who isn't. Hey, you know what? Let's work towards Mad Dog and Dr. X, which is just crazy. But those people in Duluth. That might have been the only time those two wrestled each other. In the, in, in, and you know, to ever see it, yes. Can you imagine that the, you know that Duluth held maybe I'm guessing four thousand people? There's probably fifty thousand people that say they were at that match. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's probably the Duluth version of uh, Flair Bachman. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah, hundred thousand people claim they were there, but the attendance that night was sixty-eight hundred. Yeah. Uh, so I would like to. I'd be glad to come on and talk about Jack Lance in Winnipeg, Doctor X in Winnipeg, any any topic, especially because you focus on history. Uh, 
I can talk about the modern stuff. I know some of the modern, obviously some of the, the modern wrestlers I've certainly met over the years. All sorts of guys, my travels up and down the West Coast and Mexico and L.A. and Vancouver. And I was lucky enough to do Kansas City, too. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm at a stage of life where I'm, I'm lucky to be able to, to uh, provide these kinds of memories, these kinds of insights, and hopefully uh, keep people excited and interested in the history of pro wrestling as well as what goes on in the present day. Where once in a while, even I am fortunate enough to get in the ring, and suddenly, three minutes later, I find myself flying over the top. <laughs> well, we definitely we're gonna have to get you back on the program, and uh, yeah, I I I have to kayfabe a little bit of the topics that you brought up, but uh, we have big plans for the future, so I'm really looking forward to uh, what we have coming down the pipe. Uh, I will. I look forward to 2022, and I look forward to make myself available as often as possible to. Uh, accommodate to your you know what you want to do programming wise and to be able to uh, to uh, you know present my memories and and my knowledge to uh, to your audience and uh, it's uh, it's what I, I look at what you're doing is very important work uh, and uh, and by all means anything I can do to assist you in it I'm glad to do so well I appreciate that uh, again Marty thank you so much for your time tonight and thank you and my best regards for the Christmas season and thereafter to all of the wrestling fans in your audience. Now, before I bring in my next guest for the evening, Steve Verrier, I want to make everybody aware that as you are listening to this program, I am currently in the process of filling out the application forms to get George Gordienko into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame. So as... Uh, that whole situation progresses. I will make sure that I keep you guys informed, most likely on the uh, Facebook group, Canadian Professional Wrestling History. So uh, keep it locked there. As I have any updates, I will be providing it there. I'm also going to be putting in a recommendation to the Winnipeg Art Gallery to see, to see if we can get a showcase of George Gordienko's artwork here in Winnipeg. I think that it would be uh, great for the city and a great touchstone to some of this great city's past, more specifically. So, as these applications move forward, as any progress gets made, uh, keep it locked on the Facebook group. Also, I'll be putting it out on Twitter. Uh, I'll keep you guys in the loop. And uh, hopefully, we can see some positive change and uh, really get George Gordienko the recognition that he truly deserves here, especially in Marty and myself's hometown of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Now, on to tonight's main event and my conversation with the author, like I said, of the upcoming George Gordienko book. Give it up for Steve Verrier. All right, everyone. Very happy to be joined on the line today by the man who has painstakingly written or the soon to be released at, t- at uh, the time that we're recording this program, the George Gordienko book, Canadian wrestler, artist, and renaissance man, uh, joined by two-time guest today, uh, Steve Verrier. Steve, how you doing? Doing well, Andy. I hope you're doing well, too. Well, I'm doing very well. Uh, everything here in Winnipeg is uh, is right where it needs to be in terms of December weather. And it's funny that we talk about that portion of it because... The individual who we're speaking about today, obviously Winnipeg is a big part of his story and uh, and really something that we're going to touch on big time in this episode today. But before we get into all of that, for anybody who is not familiar with you, 
And shame on you, by the way, because you should be considering he was on our incredible Gene Kaniski episode way back in season one. So if you haven't heard that episode, after you're done this, make sure you throw that one in your uh, podcasting machine. But Steve, before we get into this, let's hear a little bit about yourself and and your connection to uh, the author side of professional wrestling. Well, I'm I'm a lot newer at that than some of your other guests. I mean, I, I have written in other areas, um, and I've been a wrestling fan for a long time, but I didn't get around to writing a wrestling book until several years ago when I moved to the Pacific Northwest and, and saw there was uh, not, you know, a, a good reference work with regard to wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I, I, I am not going to say one thing negative about Vance Nevada. He wrote a great history of wrestling in Western Canada, but there had not been a book written devoted uh, entirely to wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, so I figured I would be the one to do that. I enjoyed working on that very, very much. That was what, about five years ago. Um, from that, I came to realize Gene Kaniski was a, a special personality, not just a wrestling character. So I, I got around to writing a biography of Canada's greatest athlete. Um, and I enjoyed discussing that with you on the show uh, last year. Um, so I, 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 you know, I've been at this for a little while, and um, as you mentioned, Winnipeg is a special place with regard to weather, but wrestling as well. <laughs> and um, I, I came to realize much in the way I, I noticed Kaniski was more than you would think, that uh, there was a, a man from Winnipeg, George Gordienko, whose life was absolutely fascinating. And uh, it was a couple of years ago that I, I got into researching his life, starting to work on this book. And again, I mentioned Vance Nevada once, and I've got to say that Vance was a key part of my getting into this project. He suggested I work on this project. I got some materials from him, uh, from a nephew of George Gordienko's, Ted Gordienko, who yes. lives on the West Coast. And and so things, you know, slowly have come together, but I'm, I'm very happy with this project. It's been a pleasure to work on it, and uh, it should be out in February. And um, I'm looking forward to talking about it today. So, two things. First off, I hope, and I'm crossing my fingers because I can't wait for this book to come out, but I hope that the date gets pushed up rather than delayed anymore. So I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on this one. And the second part of what I wanted to bring up quickly is we were talking off air a little bit about how websites like Amazon, they have like a, a book preview and they'll give you kind of a page count, and it's not entirely accurate in this case. It is not accurate. Um, I did not provide that page count. I, I don't know exactly how they come to that. Um, and I haven't seen any page count on the publisher's website, so I don't know where Amazon came up with this number. It says the book is going to be 192 pages. That's not correct. I, I don't know the exact page count. I'll just say that word-wise, page-wise, it should be about what the Kaniski book was, and that was a, a more substantial read. So it depends how they cram the words on the pages. But 
192 pages is not at all accurate. It'll be much longer than that. So this program today will serve as, we'll call it an appetizer for everybody out there listening tonight. So you'll have uh, you'll have some nice touch points, if you will, to uh, be able to dive into this book. And even if you're somebody who is maybe just getting into the history of professional wrestling, maybe you've read a little bit, maybe you've read some books like, like Steve's various other ones, or, you know, one of the old uh, territory books, you'll have a, a nice appreciation for uh, for the subject matter that we're getting into today. So, I should start from almost the beginning. George Gordienko. Obviously, I'm aware of him because he's born in Winnipeg like myself. But for you, was it more of coming across him in, in your other... Um, journalism ventures that kind of brought you to hit brought him more so to your attention or is it just the fact of what a story and you felt like this is something that that really needed to be transcribed well i've i've known the knowing the name gordienko for for many many years i mean i grew up as a fan so i heard about this great shooter george gordienko um I, I knew that for some reason, most of his career was based overseas, particularly yes. in London. Um, and in fact, um, I, I did watch him on television at times. Um, I grew up in Canada. I was a fan of all-star wrestling. And in 1974, George Gordienko, uh, known as Flash Gordon at the time, of all things, uh, was a headliner in Vancouver for a number of months. So, you know, I, I was aware of him. He was 40, my goodness, he was 46 years old at that time. <laughs> Past his prime a little bit, but still kind of an imposing athlete. Uh, so, you know, since Gordienko's career as it was in progress, I, I've been aware of him to some degree. And I, I, I did hear the dreaded word communism spoken in reference to his name. So, uh, you know, he's, he's always been to me somebody who was a bit of a mystery, um, definitely a good athlete. But, you know, I, I, I never had any inclination to pursue that interest and try to put the pieces together and to uncover more. Um, yeah, I, I was a fan. Gordienko was somebody I heard about. Uh, fine, you know, maybe an interesting story, but it wasn't until I started uh, getting into writing about wrestling that I, I started uh, having a real interest in, you know, putting the bones together, building the skeleton, um, you know, trying to reconstruct somebody's life. Uh, when I worked on the Pacific Northwest book and the Kaniski book, uh, the name Gordienko certainly came up. Uh, you know, he could rightly be considered a friend of Gene Kaniski's. Uh, he was a headliner for a time, as I said, in the Pacific Northwest, and he did wrestle there at times previous to 1974 as well. But no, I, I, I think it really was not until Vance Nevada, and again, you know, he's the Canadian wrestling historian as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, he contacted me and said, well, look, uh, you know, 
did the Kinniski book. I know Vance appreciated that book. Uh, he said, um, essentially, I've been contacted by George Gordienko's nephew. I have these materials. This is a project I can't get into now. How about, how about you? Do you want to do it? And in fact, at that time, I was pretty busy myself. I said, well, maybe uh, I will consider it. I can't do it now. Um, I was very, very busy for the next year, year and a half. But during that time, I would every so often look up little bits of uh, George Gordienko's life. And as I did that, I would find out, my goodness, you know, this, this guy was amazing. Uh, so, you know, when that year or year and a half passed and my schedule was freed up a little bit, I decided, well, that was the time, I'll do it. So I um, went up to BC, met Vance, uh, got the materials, contacted uh, Ted Gordienko, George's nephew, took it from there. I, I think it was really during that year or year and a half after Vance contacted me and I started putting little pieces together that I realized, oh, yeah, this is a project I want to do. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's certainly, at least from my point of view, I mean, the, Gordienko, the man, lived up to the expectation, and I'm glad I took this on. And obviously, you know, without going into an extensive amount of detail, because, again, as I've said, this is kind of the, we'll call this the the appetizer for the uh, the book release, but... We are going to give everybody a really good uh, look into the life of George Gordienko. And what what we're going to do tonight specifically, as we do with, with all of the Grappling with Canada programs, is, yes, as much as his wrestling career was very impressive, what I find much, much more impressive and much more unknown to myself and to others is the life of George Gordienko, and that's kind of what we're going to discuss tonight. So, naturally, we uh, we already teased that he was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but he started from a very early age in, in a whole bunch of different sports. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you were able to learn about his early career, uh, not even before professional wrestling. Uh it, it made him what he became in many ways. I mean, I, I, I enjoy these stories of people growing up in the prairies during the Depression. Uh, George was born in 1928, the same year as Kaniski. And, uh, you know, he was a large boy. Uh, he had two older brothers who um, were also imposing large, tough guys. Um, so during his first few years, I, I think George grew up just, uh, you know, living outside, kicking things around, making up games. But <laughs> I, I think it was um, around um, the, the late 30s when his father went back to work after being laid off in the Depression and the family got a little money that uh, George got into sports. I mean, the family... Uh, well, the boys had YMCA memberships, and in Winnipeg at that time, the Y was where you learned sports. You learned to wrestle. Um, you know, you had very good instruction there. So George was always a, a strong kid, and he did play sports as a very young person, and he certainly played hockey. He played soccer in school. 
he tried things and uh, he stood out in everything he tried from what I gather but it was when he joined the YMCA and uh, just started working out there getting a lot of instruction uh, lifting weights with his older brother um, you know things just started coming together I mean George uh, by the time he got to high school, he was known around Vancouver. I mean, there are all kinds of reports in the Winnipeg Free Press about uh, what he accomplished on the football field. Uh, yes. He attended um, Isaac Newton High School. I mean, George George was a phenom, um, just an amazing athlete. He won a city championship in the shot put. Uh, he was a very good swimmer. You know, I'm 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 going to leave things out because uh, I don't think I can possibly remember every <laughs> detail. But you know, it it just occurs to me that if you look at the amateur credentials of every Canadian professional wrestler who uh, garnered attention over the course of his career, I think you'd have to put Gordienko maybe alongside somebody like Earl McCready at the very top. I mean, Gordienko was amazing. Uh, he probably could have played professional football and done very well, but, you know, they don't make a lot of money, or they didn't. Back then, and yeah. He was well aware of that. Uh, he clearly had Olympic potential in two sports. I mean, uh, as a young man, he broke um, some provincial and Canadian amateur weightlifting records um, he was the best heavyweight provincially as a wrestler uh, for a time in Manitoba I mean clearly he had Olympic potential but again he decided not to go that route but he, he was great at um, as far as I can determine every 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 sport he tried and um, fortunately, you know, for us who appreciate what wrestlers have done over the years, that's that's what he chose to do. But uh, he could have gone in many, many directions. And uh, as I say, he was probably, at least arguably, the most impressive athlete as an amateur um, that we've ever had, you know, go on to professional wrestling. And what's much more impressive, I think, is... He most of these records and accolades and everything that he accomplished, he did essentially before 20 years of age. Like it's, it's, you're talking about a phenom. I think that's almost understating it to a point. Like he legitimately would just walk on and just be a, a star in whatever venue he essentially chose to get into. And for myself, you know, you're looking at, a lot of these names from and some that you brought up from Canadian professional wrestling history, right? They were never just a wrestler, right? They were they were a, a, a hodgepodge of all these different backgrounds and uh, of sport or whatever else, and then got into wrestling. and And Jordi, sorry, Gordienko was no different than that, and perhaps exemplifies that more than almost anybody else. Um, so for for myself, and yes, the YMCA here in Winnipeg in that era is definitely something that we're gonna have to dig into in, in later uh, episodes or seasons of grappling with Canada, because that's a whole different animal in itself. And uh, obviously way, way, way too much that 
in in terms of that that we could ever possibly cover tonight. But in, in terms, yeah, George. Sorry, go ahead. George always acknowledged the the role that his formative years at the Y played in helping him become what he became. You know, he expressed gratefulness to people like um, Ole Olson and uh, Steve Kozak. I mean, uh, Gordienko was was well aware that he he was blessed with that uh, YMCA membership as a as a young person, as you say, yeah, he was, he was so precocious. He was 17 years old when he broke Canadian national, um, you know, amateur weightlifting uh, records. Just amazing. Uh, when he was 17, he actually had a tryout with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers after they um, came back after a hiatus during World War II. Yes. Um, you know, really, George, when he was 17, 18, had to pause and decide in which direction he wanted to go. He had so many routes open. He was just amazing as a as a young fellow. You brought up a name there uh, for a second. I want to circle back real quick before we kind of move forward. And that was uh, Olsen. And this is somebody who is overlooked, I think, in terms of his kind of shaping and his molding of of Gordienko. In a lot of the, you know, quote-unquote wrestling media that you'll read out there, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but, you know, you'll hear that he was trained in Minneapolis, for example, or, or you'll hear that he really got his, his um, knowledge or, or whatever, like outside of Winnipeg. They, For some reason, it seems like the YMCA portion of his, his life and career and especially uh, his dealings with Albert Olson are kind of just, they're not expanded on properly or maybe they're, they're not talked about properly. Uh, If you could just a little bit uh, shed some light on the man kind of behind the whole start of this thing, Albert Olson. Um, He's the one who got George into amateur wrestling. Um, they were training partners during the war. Albert was out of Winnipeg. They couldn't train much at that time, but whenever he came back, uh, he and George got together and clearly uh, Olsen played a big role in helping George to become the top heavyweight amateur wrestler in Manitoba. George never made any secret of that. And it's interesting because you mentioned Minneapolis Uh, where George arrived at 18 and made his debut as a professional wrestler. But but what led to that opportunity was actually a meeting in Winnipeg with the guy who trained him in Minnesota, Joe Pazendak, who was a a very good shooter and trainer of that era. Pazendak was part of the troupe from Minneapolis that would come into Winnipeg from time to time and wrestle on shows put on by Alex Turk at that time. And uh, in fact, uh, George was not a professional wrestler yet when Pazendak appeared at the YMC in Winnipeg. He and George met. Uh, They worked out. And uh, according to George's account, and I'm I'm sure it's very true, um, 
Pazendak couldn't take him down, at least during the time they had. <laughs> it, it, took, it took long enough. I'll, I'll say George made a very good impression. Yes. So I, I think you can put that Winnipeg training phase um, and that Minnesota phase together in the sense that it was Albert Olson who really helped train train George to the point where George could make that kind of impression yes. on, on the fellow who would end up training him to be a professional wrestler in, uh, in Minnesota. So, you know, who's more responsible? Well, they, they both deserve a lot of credit, but it was Albert Ole Olson who uh, really got George started. And, um, and I agree with you completely. Olsen is underappreciated. He was one of those great amateur wrestlers. He fell just short of making it to the Olympics. Um, but he was, he was just great. And he was one of those fellows who kind of provided a, a bridge between the amateur wrestling program at the YMCA in Winnipeg and uh, the professional wrestling clubs, as they were called, in Winnipeg. Um, you know, during the 1950s and, and so on. I mean, um, he trained a lot of amateurs. He trained a lot of guys transitioning to at least semi-professional wrestling. Just, I, I think, a monumental figure in the history of, of grappling in Manitoba. Um, you know, he doesn't get his due partly because he stayed in Manitoba for the most part. He traveled at times for a match here or there in other places as a professional, but for the most part, he chose to stay in Manitoba. He worked for the fire department uh, for many years. He wrestled on the side. He trained a lot of guys. Uh, seemed to get what he wanted out of his life in that regard. He was not somebody driven to go out and make a name. And uh, even so, as far as Winnipeg grappling is concerned, uh, he he's a key figure and, and also very key to the the development of George Gordienko. And we have to also contextualize this. Again, this is all essentially before the age of 20 is all of these things happening for George Gordienko. But interestingly enough, something else that happens before his age of 20 would be his love of art. And that was something that I was fascinated by almost more than his wrestling story is, is his art career and, and how that kind of uh, all came about. So if you could just talk a little bit about kind of how he was first exposed to art and why, why did that fascinate him so much uh, as, as far as you could, uh, as far as you could uh, uh, figure out in terms of your studies? Yeah. Uh, again, going back to what I knew about Gordienko previously, I mean, the bits and pieces also besides hearing the word communist and, uh, Which is something that we're going to talk about, everybody, you know, as I well. Heard, okay, artist, wrestling <laughs> artist. So, you know, but I, I, I didn't know much about that. But when I got into digging up the details of his life, um, clearly, I mean, I've, I've got to credit George's nephew, Ted Gordienko, also for some of what I say, uh, because... After George passed away, Ted took up the cause of investigating his uncle's life, contacting many people. And from the time that Ted did that to the time I got around to doing much the same thing, you know, many of those people 
who could provide insight passed away. I mean, that's one thing you notice when you write about people who were born in 1928. I mean, the people who actually knew them are, are a little harder to to get hold of. Yes. I mean, they're either very, very aged or they've, they've left us. But Ted conducted a number of interviews, and one was with a neighbor of the Gordienkos in North Winnipeg, uh, who had a lot to say about George as um, a talented young fellow, even in elementary school. I mean, teachers noticed that if they needed an, an illustration for something school-related, well, they would go to young George, and George would, uh, <laughs> would do his part very, very well. Uh, the same neighbor, in fact, is his name was Edward Barris, a neighbor of the Gordienkos uh, in North Winnipeg, uh, also told a story about how the Gordienkos, uh, during the Depression, didn't have a lot of money. As I mentioned, George's father, Theodore, was a master blacksmith, and uh, he had a good career for the Manitoba Bridge uh, Company. Uh, but during the Depression, he was laid off. company didn't have a lot of money. Now, the game Monopoly came out in uh, in the 1930s at some point, 34, 35. Um, and the Gordienkos apparently wanted a Monopoly game. They didn't have the money for it. So the family got together. They created their own game. And this neighbor of the Gordienkos talked about how George would you know, paint the little pieces or carve out the little car that goes around the board. But, um, you know, between the painting and the carving, this gentleman said that the Gordienkos actually, and George was a large part of the creation of this, you know, they, they created this Monopoly game, which looked... Like, uh, like the, yeah, like wow. The spitting image of the original. I mean, you can imagine... You know, kids nowadays, my goodness, you you, you, you got to steal their phones. To get <laughs> you know, you can imagine a, a young fellow at that time, George probably was seven, eight years old, you know, carving these little pieces, painting the Monopoly board. They borrowed a board and George copied it. Just amazing. So I, I've heard stories like that about young George Gordienko, but I think the pivotal uh, event in his life happened at age 12 when um, Father Theodore went back to work and uh, asked George what he would like uh, in terms of a present. And George, you know, did not say boxing gloves or a sword or anything like that. He said, I would like a kit of art supplies. Wow. Um, and his father, you know, Pretty amazingly, in a sense, I mean, George was a gifted athlete, but his father, from what I hear, and I've talked to a number of relatives of the Gordienkos um, going back, you know, many, many years, from what I hear, Father Theodore was entirely in support of that idea. George wants to be an artist, so be it. So he bought George this kit of art supplies. Uh, George applied himself with a vengeance to learning how to use those. Um, you know, he always had other things on his plate. Even at 12, 13, he was, you know, running around. He was kicking a soccer ball, uh, learning to wrestle. He had a lot of things going on. But um, I think 
I, I, I think his destiny was set at that point. I mean, he knew um, whatever he did in the meantime, he was going to be an artist. Um, you could say he was cursed with this amazing physique and this great coordination. He did not get to being a full-time artist for quite a long time. Yes. Because, uh, <laughs> the sports world wouldn't let him go. Um, but, you know, the, the, the die was cast. I mean, he was, he was going to be an artist. Um, and I, I think his father has to be credited in large part for, um, you know, giving George uh, kind of a, well, that nod of support. Um, George sold his first painting and it's it's a story i mentioned in the book he sold his first painting within about a year but it was you know under circumstances maybe different from what you might imagine i'll, I'll just say that the person who bought the painting was perhaps up to some kind of illegal activity Ooh. <laughs> that on canvas <laughs> And, and the buyer, I think, wanted to buy up the evidence so that he wouldn't get into hot water. But Fascinating. Um, yeah. You know, that, that whole dual aspect of George's life is, you know, that, that tension, that, um, you know, wanting to be an artist, but realizing that wrestling really was his route to, toward getting there. I mean, all of that, I think, makes for a fascinating story. And again... You know, when I go about writing about somebody, I mean, the wrestling is not enough. Um, at least it, it hasn't been yet. It's 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 all the other stuff, the tension, the challenges, and, and, and the Gordienko story is um, full of those very much due to that dual aspect of George getting into art, wanting to do that, but kind of being cursed with this great athletic ability. And, and out, uh, his career. Naturally, the art is something that we're going to talk much more about, um, kind of as we move through the program tonight. But so we've established, you know, the athletic background. Um, you know, moving into wrestling, we've established the art background. But another part of the story that I wasn't really familiar with was him getting into the medical field. Now, and this is where it's. It's hard to find a good report about what actually happened in terms of, and I know that this is going to lead us to a different discussion after, but I want to kind of focus on the on the medical studies portion of it. Was that something that he studied here in Winnipeg and then moved down to Minneapolis for in conjunction with the wrestling? Or was it something that when he was down in Minneapolis, that's where his kind of, this, this seemingly you know, insatiable thirst for knowledge that he seems to have kind of kicks in. And so which, what, like when, when did he really start to feel like he wanted to kind of move into that set, that study? Yeah. We're, we're going to have to detour to get there. But, yes. Um, you know, when he was 18 and uh, held his own against Joe Passendak at the YMCA, uh, he was given the opportunity to move to Minnesota uh, to be a wrestler. Now, one thing I, was not aware of, but um, George did speak of this in an interview with um, a Japanese journalist, and uh, documents I've looked at indicate that George 
confirmed this as well. But he did not graduate from um, high school in Winnipeg. He uh, attended Isaac Newton. He didn't graduate. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's largely conjecture as to why. But the likeliest uh, explanation that I've come up with is that, um, you know, he wanted to get to a situation where he could make some serious money. Yes. Um, so, you know, he had opportunities in football. Again, he had two great high school football seasons. Um, he was recognized as a provincial heavyweight wrestling champion. I mean, uh, my goodness, the opportunities. But um, at, at 18, he was no longer in school. Um, he left Newton, it appears, with a year to go. And some, some young athletes did that with a view to coming back a year later and, you know, maybe enhancing their prospects of a professional career yes. or, or whatever. But um, George did not go back to school. He didn't graduate. So first of all, um, you know, when he left high school, he was not academically considered you know, ready to transition to university. So after his meeting with Pazendak, he went down to Minnesota. He was still 18 at that time. He got into professional wrestling there. Uh, he debuted just before turning 19 years old, and he had a great, 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 great start. He was living with Pazendak, training. He was a phenom known as a wonder boy, and it looked as if he was headed for a career really second to none among wrestlers uh, of that time were yes. breaking in. Uh, so I've seen nothing to indicate that he had any designs at that point on attending university. Um, you know, he was wrestling, he was working hard, he was working for Cho Basendak, who, who ran a business as well. Um, so, you know, wrestling seemed to be his focus at that time and, and art to the degree that he could fit things yeah put it in the box yeah but you know i i think when he was attending high school and in life in general he was a very curious young man uh, you know i don't know how much reading he did at that time but you know he was a sharp guy um he loved new experiences i mean that that's that, that almost goes without saying. But, you know, he was in Minnesota wrestling at age 19, doing very, very well. Uh, he went to California, did some wrestling for a number of months. Uh, you know, he did some wrestling in upstate New York. You know, he had a very, very busy time. Um, and, uh, you know, it just it came to the point where he thought, you know, this I'm traveling like mad. I'm working out all the time. You know, I, I, I want to see what else there is in the world. So um, after wrestling for about a year and a half, um, he seemed to be transitioning out of wrestling, uh, looking at opportunities and, And I was not able to deter get himself admitted to Minnesota. He uh, enrolled in a pre-med program. And by all accounts, he did well. Um, you know, I, I, I 
think he was thinking seriously of becoming a medical doctor at that time. I'm not sure in what branch of medicine. But I think the transition to university study at the University of Minnesota and this movement toward a possible career in medicine was largely the result of just feeling, okay, I don't want to keep beating up my body like this, doing this uh, brutish activity. And, you know, that's my word, not necessarily his. But, you know, he was getting tired of the old grind of, of wrestling. And this would play out in his career in later years as well. Um, there were things about professional wrestling that he did not appreciate, and sometimes he actually hated it. But um, the first time it happened um, was when he was in Minnesota and just decided, okay, enough. Uh, I'm going to study. I'm going to try something else, and I, I think it's medicine. I mean, it did not turn out that way. I mean, he ran into other roadblocks, other problems, but uh, I think that is pretty much the route he took to getting into his medical studies at the University of Minnesota. I have to wonder if that thought process for him kind of ties into something that you explained earlier in, you know, he, he's going through these different possible careers to secure his financial future, essentially. Because as we illustrated, he he, he really grew up during the Great Depression. There's no, no money to be had in the house, essentially. So now that he has this opportunity to make money, I wonder if if um, kind of improving his studies and moving into the medical field, which clearly is a, a very stable um, avenue to pursue in terms of your in terms of studies and also building a financial future. I wonder if how much that would have played into his decision, as well as you know his his natural aptitude of of just wanting to go you know full force into something and just dive right in. Yeah, I think a key consideration for him was how best to fund his interest in art. <laughs> um, you know, George, you know, I, I don't think money was at the forefront of his thinking, but uh, he definitely saw that as something he would need to get into that um, full-time career as an artist that he hoped to transition to at some point. Um, so maybe, you know, all the work in the gym, all the travel, maybe he just thought that was not so conducive to um, his future life as an artist. Maybe he thought that a, a medical career would uh, be an easier transition. But I, I think largely, you know, he, he just he craved, you know, a little more mental or intellectual activity. Maybe he wasn't entirely satisfied with the conversations he was having with fellow wrestlers, for example. Uh, maybe he wanted to get into a setting where he felt more engaged mentally. I, again, I don't know for sure, but you know, I, I think that would be consistent with, with what I do know about George Gordienko at that point in his life. He... I, I don't think he was very happy, you know, traveling, wrestling night after night, training. And at that time, again, he was often working for Joe Pazendak, shoveling cement and, and so on. So um, I, I think he wanted to get into not necessarily a cushier situation, but maybe something more in 
tune with his um, his curiosities and, and things of that sort. Um, he he wanted to try everything. I think you could probably say and uh, and university is a you know it's, it's a good experience for a lot of people. And even if what you study, what you discuss is in no way connected with what you end up doing. Yes. For, for a curious <laughs> young person, uh, it can be a good route. And I think that's what he saw. Before we get any further, there's just something you had mentioned offhand, and I kind of want to circle back to. And that was regarding things that he was finding that he didn't particularly like about the wrestling industry, if you will. Without going into too much detail, because obviously um, I'm very fascinated to actually get my hands on the book and, and read these the stories in depth. But in in terms of what you were able to find, just generally speaking, was it the day-to-day grind of, of work out, have the match? Was it the travel? Was it having to wrestle for the same guy who's your boss in, in your real life job? Like, or was it a combination of these, these kind of uh, hindrances that he felt? I, I suspect very strongly that, um, you know, the, the, the wrestling life was so grueling and took so much from his focus on art that that was a concern to him. Um, you know, later in his career, when George could pretty much pick and choose what he did in terms of wrestling, because, uh, you know, for a 20-year period, uh, you know, his services were in demand worldwide. He sold out stadiums. Uh, he could say no. He was nobody's employee, you could say. He made the deals he wanted to make. Uh, in those days, when he wasn't wrestling, often he would just be holed up for days and days and days painting. You know, I've talked to people who lived with him during those years, and, and sometimes they wouldn't see him for days. Um, you know, painting was his focus and anything that detracted from that, I think, was a concern. And I think he thought along those lines to a large degree, even as a very young man. Uh, so just, you know, that grueling physical life, I think, was getting a little tiring to him. And he, um, he probably had no idea that the transition to life as a full-time artist would... <laughs> you know, take uh, decades longer than he anticipated at first. But again, maybe he didn't realize what a what an in-demand wrestler he would become internationally. Um, you know, I, I, I think he was concerned though, about losing a grasp of that um, artistic destiny that he seemed to have a sense of. Um, I, you know, I don't know how drawn he was to medicine exactly. I'm sure he enjoyed the, the mental aspect of his studies. But um, I, I just think he felt that wrestling was not – wrestling was going to take away more than it gave in terms yes. of where he wanted to go in life. Now, naturally, there's another large event that occurred uh, in his personal life in in America. And that's something I want to touch on a little bit later. I kind of want to keep on this – our train of thought here, just in terms of the wrestling aspect of it. Because as you said, he ended up becoming in a position where he could literally call a shot. If he didn't want to go somewhere, he didn't have to go. If he wanted to go somewhere and demand the 
you know, type of money or the type of whatever that he wanted, he would get it. And we're talking um, like he, he's over in, in Europe, he's in the Middle East, he's in Australia, he's in India, he's in South Africa. And this seems to be a theme that I've seen, you know, essentially from every episode that I've done of this of this program, save a couple, but it's it's these you know, men and women, women from Canada who, who, you know, start their career here and then go far overseas and really, really that's where they make their name for themselves. And maybe that's something that plays into why they're not looked at as favorably, we'll say in Canada in terms of, uh, of a career synopsis and how really impactful they are or were, uh, to Canada and then obviously the international you know, markets. Can you talk a little bit about or expand, I should say, a little bit more on what he what his impact and, and what it really meant to him to be essentially a shot caller in the international market, the larger international market? Um it's interesting. He was associated for much of his career with joint promotions in England, uh, in the UK. Um, which for a time was probably the the busiest wrestling promotion in the world. Uh, It ran its wrestlers ragged, but Gordienko had um, an association with that promotion where he was essentially a freelancer. Um, He was a loyal, um, you know, a a loyal participant. Um, But, you know, he was careful to guard his freedom. And for the most part, while he was based in the UK, he could, you know, take the shots he wanted. Uh, he could travel overseas and or he could travel to places you mentioned as he as he wished. Um, and even when he went with some of the other wrestlers from joint promotions, you know, I don't think he was burdened with... Uh, um, you know, having to pay the home promotion off the way that many of these uh, other wrestlers did. So he had a very, very good situation. Um, uh, he he was very judicious with regard to, the, you know, how he protected his time, his ability to make his own decisions and so on. Um, not many wrestlers were in that situation. I mean, one who comes to mind now is, Lou Thez, but only at the times when Lou Thez would tell the NWA, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm yeah. walking out, find somebody else for now. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want for a time. But but Gordienko made much of his career being in that situation where he could make his own deals. Uh, you know, he could travel to India, do, you know, three shots in stadiums, and then go to South Africa or wherever. I mean, he was uh, um, he, he was largely a freelancer and, and one who was very, very well paid. Uh, in an article that uh, Greg Oliver's website will be running one of these days, I mean, I, I did some articles in preparation for the release of the book. In one of those, I, I make the point that George Gordienko, you know, not um, – uh, Whipper Billy Watson, not even Gene Kaniski or any of these guys. It was Gordienko who was Canada's most successful wrestler worldwide. 
um, from the 1950s to the 1970s. And largely that's because he refused to be just an employee. Yes. Um, he called his shots. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think when people come to realize just, you know, how he orchestrated this amazing career, uh, they will be impressed. And uh, I'm sure we're going to come up to some of the circumstances that led to Gordienko kind of having to orchestrate his own career and, and spend many years overseas. But, um, you know, this is not a typical wrestling story, and he was not a typical wrestler at all. There is something that I need to circle back to much earlier in our conversation when we were discussing kind of how you your first memories in, of George Gordienko and, and one of the names that had come up was when he was competing as Flash Gordon. Um, I found it interesting that he, in certain countries, would use a different name. So, or certain areas of countries even would use a different name. And, and maybe that's one of the first instances I can really see of somebody kind of changing their not character, but changing their presentation, we'll see, uh, to suit something else in a different market that he was in. Talk to me a little bit about uh, his him using the name Flash Gordon and also him using the name of Furpo Zabisco. Yeah, the, the Flash Gordon thing is kind of wacky because, in, in, in fact, there, there was another Flash Gordon who wrestled in British Columbia, I think back in the 50s. Um, I think a guy from Pennsylvania. Um, so there had been a Flash Gordon in the Pacific Northwest previously, but, um, you know, from the time that George first wrestled in British Columbia in the 1950s and, you know, at times in the 1960s, he was known as George Gordienko. Um, he wrestled for All-Star Wrestling in Vancouver previous to 1974, and he was George Gordienko. And the reason for the switch in 1974, I think, doesn't make a lot of sense. But as I mentioned previously, George had two brothers. One of them lived in Victoria. His name was Leonte Gordienko. He was also known as Gordy Gordienko. Oh. He was uh, a very good boxer. And he also had an association with uh, wrestling on the West Coast, particularly as a referee. Um, so there, there was a referee named Gordienko on some of the shows where George wrestled. Um, I don't think that was construed as a problem in the, the 1950s or 60s, but... In 1974, when George arrived in British Columbia, and again, he, he enjoyed British Columbia. It was after he left Manitoba for good, you could say. Um, his home base in Canada switched to the West Coast. Yes. Um, largely because that's where his brother, um, Gordy Gordienko, was situated. So, you know, George was in and out of British Columbia, Columbia over the years, but... In 74, the promoters, you know, Kovacs, Kaniski, and Don Owen, um, determined that, well, you know, we better not have a wrestler on the card <laughs> whose name is the same as the referee's name. Uh, so I think Gordy was mainly uh, refereeing in, uh, in Victoria, or at least on Vancouver Island. But 
um, there was just this determination that, well, we better change the name. They came up with Flash Gordon, which probably would have suited a, a high-flying kind of <laughs> yeah, wrestler a yes. better. Uh, I don't think I've talked to anybody who thought Flash Gordon was a good name for George Gordon. No. <laughs> it's kind of the backstory to that name. Um, you mentioned other names that Gordienko used. Uh, as far as the Furpo Zubisco name is concerned, that's kind of interesting. There was a wrestler uh, in Alberta who went by the name Furpo Zubisco uh, during uh, Gordienko's run in Alberta in the 1950s, but um, I, I don't think there was any connection between George taking on that name in India um, in later years and this Furpo Zubisco who wrestled in um, in uh, in Alberta. But um, you know, some old time wrestling fans listening to this may recognize this name, Stanislav Zubisco. Um, Stanislav was. Uh, a top international wrestler. Yes. And he had, um, you know, some association with um, a wrestler from, um, well, India and what became Pakistan in later years, named the great Gamma, the same ring name as a wrestler you've done. An yes, episode on. Gamma Singh. Uh, but an entirely different wrestler. So th there was a, a history between this um, Indian-Pakistani wrestler and Stanislav Subisko. And um, when George Gordienko made a deal to come into India in the 1970s, a story was created that, uh, okay, this is going to kind of be a follow-up to the previous Zabisco and Great Gama stories. So Dara Singh, who was the Indian wrestler uh, for many years and uh, the fellow that Gordieka was going to face in India in, uh, in the 1970s, uh, there was a story created that, you know, he was kind of... Um, I don't remember if they suggested a blood relative. <laughs> he was considered next in that line of great Indian wrestlers following Great Gamma. Yes. And it, it was determined, well, if we're going to do that, why don't we sort of connect this Gordienko guy to Stanislaus Subisco? And um, so George was brought into India as Furpo Subisco, um, was for promotional purposes entirely. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't George's doing. George probably thought, well, this is silly, but okay, you're paying me. If they have yeah, they <laughs> paying the bills, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, he, thinking other names, I mean, in France, well, he went as Georges with an S at the end of the name. And, and often that S was sort of, um, affixed to the name George. So his name on posters in the UK was often spelled with an S at the end. But, yes. Um, was he anybody else? <laughs> in, in any case, that, that kind of explains how he became Flash Gordon, how he became Furpos Abisco. I mean, it's just the wrestling world. That's how things happened. So as his in-ring career was kind of winding down, 
it unfortunately took a took a hard stop, if you will, uh, during a match in I believe it was Germany, um, where he had essentially a career-ending ankle injury. Um, can you explain a little bit of just what happened there, and obviously that allowed him to fully transition into what he actually wanted to end up doing with the with the remainder of his life. It's not that simple. I've I've seen reports. Um... And this is where this is where it gets interesting too, because there are, depending on what you read, it's there's different. T- so, anyways, well, I'll I'll let you kind of expand on this a little bit. <laughs> Excuse me. Yeah, George spent a, a lot of time over the years in Germany and Austria. He loved going there for the tournaments. Uh, you know the the night after night appearances in the same venue. And in 1974, George was in Germany, as he often was. This was after his uh, his final run in Vancouver, the Flash Gordon run. Yes. And uh, at that time, probably the best German wrestler was a man named Roland Bach. Um, he was he was a shooter, very skilled wrestler, and uh, George. At about that time, was having uh, ankle problems. I mean, he had problems going into that match. I don't remember exactly how many days he was sort of fighting his ankle to stay uh, to stay in the matches. But yeah, George's ankle was not doing particularly well, and he was wrestling these uh, uh, you know these hungry wrestlers. The German style was was fairly hard hitting, as I say, night after night the same venue, the same fans, um, you know, you'd better be pulling out all of the stops to impress the same people night after night. Yes. So, you know, George um, generally held to his end of a bargain, so he continued wrestling. And um, the best information I've come up with um, is that George said to Roland Bach, Uh, Prior to their match, look, you know, I'm having trouble with the ankle. Just take it easy on that ankle. And um, Bach, in some later interviews, um, I think, portrayed his match against George as a shoot. Um, My best determination is no. I mean, it was a professional wrestling match between two highly skilled pros. Um, Two guys who didn't mind taking a beating in the ring. Um, you know, they wrestled, uh, I don't remember in which city. It was a tournament. George actually won the match, but in the process, his ankle was broken. So, uh, you know, he couldn't continue to do that night after night. Um, He won the match, broke the ankle. But the interesting thing is that this is often reported as the end of George Gordienko's wrestling career. It was not. Uh, That was in 1974. He took, um, uh, my memory tells me, a couple of months off to recover. And in fact, he came back in Germany. He took on some matches. He got back into ring shape. And again, I am not 100% sure this was the motivation, but we've got to look at the time frame. George wrestled until 1975. Um, the breaking of the ankle happened in 74. 
he came back. You know, you have to wonder. I mean, at that time, George, there are a lot of things we haven't gotten into, but George was very much connected with the love of his life. Uh, it's not widely reported, but he was married previously. He even had a son that nobody seems to know about. But uh, George was very much connected with an altogether different woman uh, at the time of the German uh, incident. And she wanted him to get out of wrestling. She hated it. He loved her. He wanted to leave, but he was getting these offers you know, to wrestle in stadiums. Uh, he was doing very well, even in his mid-40s. And as best I can determine, the reason he came back in Germany is that he probably had already made a couple of deals to wrestle the following year um, as Furpo Zabisco, as it turned out, in India. And he ended up wrestling also in Zambia um, in 1975 so i think he already had in mind that okay i'm going to do these big shows yes. next year he got his ankle broken so he came back he tested the ankle i'm sure he was very careful about what he did uh, but he was able to wrestle um, back in germany and i think he took some matches back in the uk to make sure uh, and then he went on uh, in later months in 1975 to do the stadium shows against Dara Singh in India and in uh, in Zambia. And I think he had a match also against Dara's younger brother, who was also a, a, a very famous wrestler in India. So I, I think George, um, by that time, was looking toward the end of the career, end of his career, but he did not intend for that to take place in Germany. Uh, the ankle break was an unfortunate event. I don't think it happened at all in a shoot match. And uh, according to uh, Ted Gordienko, George indicated that he had no hard feelings, that uh, the incident with Bach was just, you know, a bad break. Yes. You know, excuse the pun. Um, and I, I think George and Bach, you know, I, I, I think they got along. They wrestled again in Germany, I believe. Uh, so the story that Bach ended his career is not entirely true. Um, maybe, uh, you know, George said, well, I, I better be really careful. But, yes. you know, I'm going to get to the finish line. I'm going to do this on my terms. Um, and he did wrestle those big matches in 1975. So it, it's unfortunate, and it's always difficult when you have an injury like that uh, so late in your career. He was 46 when it happened. Um, but, you know, I think he was looking to the finish line. I think he'd been certainly talked into getting out of wrestling uh, by the woman that he loved, um, uh, he was ready, but uh, he just had a little more in the tank and wanted to get to the finish line. And, uh, you know, again, all of that is part of the the fascinating aspect of the George Gordienko story. But, um, uh, yeah, it was not easy for him, I think, toward the end of his career. Now, there was two pivotal women in terms of the overarching story of Gordienko. One, obviously, we've just been alluding to right now, 
and we're going to get into their relationship and and kind of how that uh, how that helped facilitate his art career, if you will. But before that, we need to discuss the events that happened in America with his first wife. So, and and this is where again we've been talking about you know throughout the course of this program how there's conflicting reports and. I'm sure some of that has to do with um, reporting at the time, and I'm sure another part of it has to do with how, you know, a tale gets bigger or spun differently, and then that one gets repeated, and then that tale gets a life of its own, and so on and so forth. So, let's get into the situation that happened in America involving his involvement, non-involvement, with the Communist Party in America. So, and and I'm sure that you have a ton to get into in terms of this. And, and this is something, and I don't want to obviously give the entire story away because once again, I want to really direct people to, to go to their way to get the book, to, to read the full story. But let's get into uh, and expand a little bit, at least in regards to uh, what happened in America with him. There, there is a lot, and yeah, that certainly is played that, up big in the book. But uh, maybe, I, maybe that's where their page count comes from. Hey, one hundred ninety-six <laughs> pages just on that portion. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I think we got to go all the way back to North Winnipeg to to look at the roots of that. I mean, North Winnipeg was kind of the immigrant part of Winnipeg, um, and you know, there was there was a lot of feeling in that part of Winnipeg and in the Gordienko household as well, that, um, you know, that, that maybe this capitalist thing wasn't working particularly well, that um, people, especially in that um, immigrant community of North Winnipeg were, were mistreated by employers. I mean, I don't want to get into that too much, but I'm just saying in that setting of North Winnipeg. Yes, You're cut, we're setting the table a little bit, yes. There, there was suspicion. I mean, the, the general strike was still in many people's memory, obviously. Um, and uh, so George grew up in a situation where he would have heard repeatedly that, uh, you know, the feds are doing this, you know, it's not fair to us. And, you know, look at that. They, they lost their jobs. The company's doing fine. Um, so George grew up in that setting. Now, that doesn't mean that he was particularly sympathetic to that kind of thinking. But um, when he went to Minnesota as a, a young man, I mean, he was open-minded. He was curious. And when he was attending the University of Minnesota, yes, um, there's no doubt he attended some communist meetings. Um, and um, you alluded to, yes, another woman in his life um, who, in fact, was the sister-in-law of his trainer, Joe Pazendak. Um, so um, Ruth Pazendak, who became Ruth Gordienko, um, was very much the reason that George Gordienko, we could say, 
was excluded from the United States. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a long, long story. Her story is that George got her into communism. George's story is that, well, yeah, he attended some meetings, but she was hardcore. A part of it, and, yes. Um, you know, who knows the exact reality, but George did admit over the course of his life that, yeah, you know, I attended some meetings. Um, he characterized that in a government document that I've looked at as, as youthful folly. Um, <laughs> so, but, but again, we're talking the McCarthy era, but on the other hand, who doesn't try a lot of things in university that, uh, if, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to mention things that I did, but <laughs> um, that's a whole other book. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, George happened to be Canadian, so that put him as, at a disadvantage in terms of, you know, the ability to live and work in the United States is concerned. Yes. Um, so, you know, while studying, yeah, he attended some communist meetings. He married Ruth. They attended meetings together. And it was when George... Um, was found to have distributed some communist propaganda or leaflets on the campus that you could say he became noticed by U.S. authorities. Uh, he was not deported from the United States, um, but he and Ruth definitely learned that authorities were concerned about him. And at that time, and uh, by the by, the way, they they had a son, um, whom I've spoken to and who contributed uh, nicely to to this book. Um, you know, they had a son, and George and Ruth decided, you know, we want to raise our kid. Uh, you know, maybe we're going to have problems in terms of George's ability. George was out of wrestling at that time, but yes, you know, things are not going great. Um, George said, well, look, why don't we go to Winnipeg? They did that. Uh, the three Gordienkos went to Winnipeg. Um, and, you know, Ruth told the story later about how they were involved in Winnipeg and, again, hardcore communist activities. Um, most of what she testified to has not been corroborated, I think, in any meaningful way. But uh, over the course of their time in Winnipeg together, the marriage kind of disintegrated. Um, Ruth's story is that she, you know, G George didn't think she was communist enough. George um, always refuted that. They, Whatever happened, the marriage did not survive. Ruth and her son ended up coming back to Minnesota. And Ruth right away notified authorities in the United States. Um, said, listen, I've got this husband who's up in Winnipeg. He's a hardcore communist. You know, they, they want to blow up bridges and do this and this. Yes. Keep them out of the United States. And that really is what led to George's exclusion uh, from the United States. He was not deported, but he was not allowed back in um, at that time. Um, what really happened 
We don't know, but I've, I've read the testimony. I've looked at government documents in, in detail. I've seen nothing to corroborate jo um, Ruth's claims, I mean, other than what George admitted to, you know, attending meetings, uh, being curious, things of that sort. You know, as, as far as some of the um, stories Ruth had to tell are concerned, I've seen nothing to back that up. And, and also, as I investigated the case, um, it became pretty apparent that uh, the Gordienko case was not given uh, proper, unbiased attention. I mean, there are questions as to a relationship possibly between Ruth and one of the, the people involved in the investigation. Um, it appears that she was a paid informant of the FBI. Oh. Uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't look good in terms of justice. I mean, that was the McCarthy era. We don't know exactly what happened. The marriage didn't survive, but based on what Ruth told the authorities, George was not permitted back into the United States to wrestle. And one thing I get into in the book is that, uh, you know, a few years later. I mean, George was out of wrestling for four years. Yes. Um, he was working odd jobs in Winnipeg, and then he went and uh, did some work in British Columbia when he was staying with his brother on the island. Um, you know, he was out of wrestling and still, until Stu Hart gave him a call uh, in 1952. Um, but within a few years, uh, George had the best backer he possibly could have had in wrestling. And George came back in Stampede Wrestling. He faced Lou Thez a few times. And as I mentioned earlier, Thez from time to time would tell the NWA, you better find somebody else. Yep. I'm tired of this. I'm going to do some other business or I'm, I'm going to make my own deals. And uh, Thez very highly recommended Gordienko as his replacement to be NWA champion in 56, the year Whipper Billy Watson ended up being champion. Um, George ended up being, uh, I mean, it was just not possible since he could not, you know, get authorized to wrestle in the United States. Yes. So it's, it's amazing all these details coming together, but yeah, that other woman in his life, um, who, I mean, she she was, yeah, yeah I, I want to speak very carefully. Um, you know, he, I'll say they had a good marriage for a time. Um, it blew up. And uh, in the aftermath, uh, you know, George had many, many, many problems. I, I don't have much ill to say about her. I, I you know, spoken a number of times to their son. Um, you know, it's just one of those situations, I think, where two people should not have been together. Maybe they saw things differently. I don't know. You know, I don't want to comment on the mental aspect, but, um, you know, it, it did not end well. But on the other hand, if not for that uh, marriage and its aftermath, maybe... Uh, you know, maybe George would not have been the uh, top Canadian wrestler internationally from the 1950s to the 1970s. 
uh, that's just part of the fascinating story. But um, yeah, that's that's a little bit about his marriage, and uh, uh, not many people are aware of that. But uh, uh, very very pivotal in his life, and uh, you know, even pretty much right to the end. I mean, there was that uh, tension that division George did meet his son from time to time afterward but uh, yeah those two people probably should never have <laughs> yes. decided to get married see most marriages that you know end with a little bit of animosity if you will normally don't <laughs> include you know somebody being excluded from from you know doing their profession chosen profession in a in an entire country, if you will, and obviously the allegations, uh, although extremely damaging at the time, without those allegations, you're exactly right. Who knows if he would have ever, you know, came back to wrestling in the 50s, and, it, and it, who knows if that would have translated to him becoming the biggest drawing star from Canada, essentially in history over overseas. So it's, as awful i'm sure as the situation was regarding the you know dissolving of the marriage and and the actions afterwards you can't have the story without that pivotal piece and what a wild tale and i think what's what's uh it's so point counterpoint of like his his first marriage and then how he wound up with as you had put it previously the love of his life and, and there's another story that's absolutely mind blowing as well for for those of us who, you know, either are not those who are listening to this program who are not familiar with Gordy Engel's story, and then even myself would do it during my research of this. We have to talk about Christina and what she meant to him and the Gordy Engel story. Yeah. Uh, George was a big name wrestler in Greece. In fact, a name I didn't mention earlier is his Greek wrestling name. He was uh, known as Georgi Korienko in Greece. Uh, he was uh, a huge star in the 1960s, particularly. You know, he would go back for the summer festivals in Greece at times. He was a main eventer and uh, one of the top. Um, international wrestlers in Greece. And during one of his visits to Greece, it was in 1969, um, he met a woman. Um, yeah, her name was Christiana Tasso, and she um, captivated him from the beginning. Uh, she was engaged to marry another fellow, George. I don't know whether he knew that. Or didn't care. Said, Would you like to go for a coffee? And apparently it was the first coffee she ever went for. She said yes. Um, and she, you know, I've, I've listened to recordings of her interviews with Ted Gordienko. She talked about how she and George loved each other from the beginning. But she was kind of turned off by his uh, wrestling activity. She said, oh, you got to get out of that. Yes. When she learned what an artist he was, I mean, she was determined to get him out of wrestling. Um, again, that was George's bread and butter at that time. He was in his early 40s already, but he was still doing very, very, very well. 
um, that was their meeting. Uh, George finished his commitment in Greece at that time, and he had to go back to Western Canada to to do a run for Stu Hart. And um, George and Christiana reunited in London a few months later, I think still in 1969. And I've had occasion to look at some correspondence between them. And, wow. Um, you know, you know, I, George, I, I think he wrote to my little gardenia or something of that sort. I mean, he was... Uh, George was kind of a wordsmith. I mean, he did write poetry at times, and uh, uh, you know, his his correspondence with Christiana is not entirely what I would have expected. I mean, he talked about hating wrestling by then, and you know, wanting to develop the technique and art to get out of wrestling. Um, but it's 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 interesting she made it clear well you know you you've got to do it and she is largely credited with being the person who convinced george that yes he can make a living out of this um you know he always had it in the back of his mind yeah but he was hesitant to um you know, to, to cut ties with wrestling, to try to make a living as an artist. So she kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And by her account, within a few years, George had a lot more confidence. And I, I think that was definitely the case. Uh, he started exhibiting fairly consistently in Europe, you know, in the 1970s, the early 70s, while he was still wrestling. He spent extended periods in Italy where she actually lived in a castle. Yes, uh, so, you know, she kind of turned his life around. She made an Italian gentleman out of him, you say. <laughs> um, you know, he did remain in wrestling for a time, but uh, they got together when they could. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned in the book that she was really the key person in his life. I mean, um, it, it was not some of the other very influential people, but she was the one who pumped up his confidence um you know she right you know i mentioned she'd been uh, engaged i mean that uh, she certainly ended that and um I, th I think the person she was planning to marry prior to meeting george was a, a wealthy industrialist type and i think newspapers were critical of her decision to leave um this magnet for this uh well, George was kind of characterized, I think, as a circus clown being a wrestler. <laughs> Jesus. Um, you know, so, yeah, she, <laughs> his life made a U-turn. Uh, but she was definitely a key figure in building up his confidence as an artist. And, um, you know, he, he was, uh, he started to realize, yes, I really can do this. And he was just looking for the opportunity to to get out of wrestling, but as long as he was offered the opportunity to fill up stadiums, uh, I think he was a little disinclined. It's to hard to turn that down. Yeah, uh, you know, and they stayed together for a number of years. They had about a 20-year relationship. Uh, it did not end badly, but George, uh, in the late 80s, 
um, as best I can determine, just figured, well, look, with whatever time I've got left, I want to develop my own style as an artist. He was having some success in Europe. He had done some exhibitions in Canada, you know, on the West Coast and actually his work was on display on the West Coast, but exhibitions in Winnipeg, uh, Eastern Canada as well. Um, and in parts of Italy, I mean, he, he was doing okay, but uh, I think he felt that he was um, too attuned to the market, shall we say. Um, you know, he had training, academic training as an artist. Um, you know, he had gone to art schools in, in London. Um, but I think by the late 1980s, he figured, I, I want to do art as I want to do it. I mm -hmm. want to develop my style more fully. So based on that determination, he ended up leaving the love of his life in Italy. She was hoping they would get back together. Uh, it didn't happen. But again, if you have to identify the real love of George's life in the big picture, it was his art. Yes. You know, and the art won out at the end. But he had a 20-year relationship with uh, with. Christiana, they did keep in touch afterwards. She did marry somebody else. In fact, uh, I believe it was the agent for George's artwork oh. <laughs> in Italy that she ended up marrying. But um, yeah, I, I would identify her as the key person in George's life and in helping uh, him to finally say, okay, yeah, I've got to do this. And even in helping him to determine that he had to return to Canada and devote himself single-mindedly to art. So you could say she was kind of responsible as well for the end of his relationship with her and his decision to leave and, and to, to be single-minded in his uh, artistic life. It's interesting you use the term single-minded because I had read an article uh, regarding George and that's kind of how he, he termed it himself. And he had, there was a quote that he had said uh, that he was quote back on back in Canada on Vancouver Island. Uh, he was living in a quiet location, and he was trying to kind of bring all of his experiences together to kind of facilitate his own style or his own. I I'm not even sure what the word you would say, but his own his own um, flavor, if you will, of of his art and what he wanted to do with the remainder of his his artistic career. Yeah, that, that sounds like a quotation from the letter that he wrote to the Cauliflower Alley Club. Yes. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, in 1990, uh, he returned to Canada, to Vancouver Island. Um, and he stayed for a while in Victoria, but um, in relatively short order, uh, he moved up the shore to a village called Black Creek. Um, there was not a lot there. His home was very, very modest, but he decided, okay, if I'm here, there's nothing for me except my art. This yes. is where I want to be. And, um, you know, for the last decade of his life, um, that's 
pretty much all he did. He came back to Victoria on occasion, and he he ended up spending the the very latter part of his life in Victoria, largely for for medical reasons. Uh, but for a solid decade, he was, uh, you know, he was a hermit artist. <laughs> uh, I've I've talked to some people who knew him during those years, some other artists and um, um, a Japanese journalist and a journalist based in Vancouver Island. I mean, people who knew him at that period, they would talk about how his little home was just cluttered with art. I mean, sometimes... It was a lot like when he was in London painting for days on end. Yes. And, uh, you know, yeah, he, he did an amazing amount of work. He did, I think, succeed in developing that style that he'd been looking for. He did pretty much what he wanted to do. Um, and, uh, you know, I haven't been up to his community with, with COVID, you know, to take a look at where he did his work. But... Um, yeah, he lived on the shore. He didn't go out much, though. Sometimes, apparently, he went out into the parking lot to paint, and he would do a number of paintings over the course of one day. So, you know, he would get outside, but but not very far as yes. a rule. You know, he was completely devoted to to his artwork and wanted to accomplish as much as he could in the time that he had left. So, while we're still discussing his uh, his art career and his, you know his pursuit of of same there's one chance meeting that we haven't discussed yet and and that involves a very famous painter and i believe that this meeting happened in paris yes well you know people may not be aware that picasso was a, a wrestling fan and uh yeah he did run into george uh George had a lot of respect for Picasso, thinking that he was somebody who paid his dues. Um, and, you know, they ended up spending a little time together. I'm not aware of any meeting other than a single one. Yes. Uh, but they did some discussion, and George always spoke of that as a key event in his life. And, um, Again, I, I think Picasso was probably pretty impressed and thrilled as well. <laughs> I mean, George George was, uh, he was in and out of France at times during his career. And uh, wrestling was a popular, um, popular sporting activity. So people were aware of the... Uh, the wrestlers coming in from the UK and other places. And yeah, those two did have a meeting and uh, uh, George talked about that frequently afterward. Just what an incredible story. Like just there's the layers of the Gordienko story is really what I find is the most fascinating portion of it. And again, here's a guy from, you know, North Winnipeg of all places to be from who ends up accomplishing and having chance meetings and, and, you know, main eventing in headlining stadiums and like just all, all of these unbelievable life experiences. And to me, that's, that's the, the story, not the, the, although his wrestling accomplishments are incredible. I'm not downplaying that, but his, his personal life to me is 
that blows it all out of the water as far as I'm concerned. I, I agree completely. I mean, that, um, I mean, just what an amazing life. I mean, he is somebody that Manitobans and Canadians and, you know, anybody ought to be aware of. I mean, just a fascinating story. Um, and, you know, I, I love those tales of uh, kids from immigrant families. I mean, I start the book off prior to the family's arrival in Canada. His father's story uh, was fascinating. Um, the story of George's uh, mother and her family's, uh, you know, arrival in Canada. I mean, just, you know, how they ended up in Winnipeg. Yes. It just, you know, there's so much. I mean, in a sense, the Kaniski story was fascinating that way. But, uh, you know, when you can go back a generation or two and, uh, you know, piece things together uh, in an entertaining way, simply because they did things that were so entertaining to hear about. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. I think, uh, you know, if there is another wrestler out there whose story is more deserving of being told than Gordienko's, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that person. I think that's a fantastic kind of um, way to wrap up our conversation regarding him. But before we kind of move to the end of our discussion tonight, and again, I highly encourage pre-order the book if you are able to. I know Amazon has it. Uh, Barnes and Noble, I think you can also pre-order. There's very, there's a, a plethora of sites that you can go ahead and pre-order the book, and I highly encourage everybody to do so. But before we wrap it up, is is there one story without giving too much away that really kind of um, I don't want to use "blow your mind" because that's such a an overused statement. But is is there one story that you came across in the Gordienko story that even you were kind of taken aback a little bit by? Well, yeah, I'm going to take a slightly different approach to that. I mean, as far as Gordienko is concerned, there is a lot of mystery. And one thing that I tried to piece together but could not altogether has to do with um, a certain situation in the 1970s. Again, back to the Flash Gordon period. Yes. Um you know, I, I noticed as I was looking over George's record as a professional wrestling that he made some appearances in Washington State uh, in 1974 ah. working for All-Star Wrestling. So, um, you know, that sort of caught my attention because, you know, he's not supposed to yes, be yes. able to do that, you know, at least as far as I knew. Uh, so I, I did end up looking through a number of documents. I mean, Ted Gordienko had made some requests to the U.S. Department of Justice. And, um, you know, there, there was a... Um, I, I did look through a dossier of materials, and I, I tried to piece things together. I contacted a number of people who might know about this, but... Uh, you know, it, 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 it is clear Gordienko wrestled in Washington State in 1974. Now, I saw um, a document. Actually, I, I, I read a letter that he sent to U.S. authorities requesting a travel waiver to wrestle uh, in the U.S. for all-star wrestling. And he had letters um, 
supporting his case written by the uh, promoters in Vancouver. Um, but I, I saw nothing that um, corroborated um, that a waiver was actually granted. You know, no, nothing about that. Um, he applied to wrestle in the United States. Also, when he was based in Montreal in 1973, um, that promotion, Grand Prix Wrestling, um, also had some shows in Vermont, and I saw an advertisement um, indicating that Gordienko was going to be wrestling on a show. So, you know, I, I contacted people who would know, as far as Vermont is concerned, I, I gave uh, Paul Butcher-Vachon a call. We talked about that. He could not remember if George actually wrestled in Vermont. Um, you know, as, as far as Washington State is concerned, I talked to Wayne Bridges before he passed away. Bridges was a, a wrestler in Vancouver uh, in 1974 and a, a good friend of Gordienko's. And he said, yeah, we crossed the border together. Um, nothing was spoken of a waiver. They just said, where are you guys going? And, you know, they were Off recognized they as wrestlers, pretty much waved through. Um, so there's that whole aspect which is not completely clear. I mean, uh, George did visit the United States. I talked to one person, um, a relative of Joe Pazendax, who said that she saw George visiting the Pazendax in Minnesota in the late 1950s. I could find nothing to corroborate that story. But, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to claim to have solved every little mystery in the Gordiento <laughs> story, but you know, I'm still a little bit curious as to exactly what happened in the 1970s. Vermont, there's no evidence that George wrestled uh, in Vermont. Um, Butcher Vachon doesn't remember. I tried to reach another wrestler who was uh, billed for some of those shows, but I, I did not get a clear response. Um, I talked to the brute, Bugsy McGraw, about Washington. He did not remember details concerning how George got into Washington. So there are still mysteries, and that sort of, you know, bugs me a little bit. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say that's, you know, the, the, the whole notion of George wrestling in Washington State, uh, I found surprising at the time. I'm accustomed to that notion now, but... Um, you know, I'm still a little eaten at by the lack of details concerning exactly what happened in the 70s. And I, I bring that up in the book and I do indicate what I could not confirm. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, exactly what happened. Did George get a waiver for a time? Did he sneak across the border? I, I don't think George... Uh, you know, I, I don't think George would have sneaked across the border by that point in his life. He didn't need that complication. Uh, the, the promoters definitely wanted him on those shows in Washington State. But, you know, I, th I think George respectfully would have said no. He did uh, apply for a waiver. You know, I, I just don't know. Based on the documents that seem to survive, uh, it seems impossible to, to reconstruct every detail. I'm I'm curious. So, 
um, that's not so surprising, but uh, you know, a, a bit of a mystery yet to be solved. And I think that perfectly fits into our ongoing theme of this year of Grappling with Canada. So as we uh, look to wrap up this episode, obviously we are very much looking forward to and anticipating the uh, release of the book that clearly we've been discussing for the last uh, hour and change here. But uh, for yourself, outside of of this project, what do you have uh, going on in the future? Or has this really taken your whole time and you you are... uh, you're looking for something else to do after this. Uh, my next book, which is written, um, will be out in the summer, but it has nothing to do with wrestling. <laughs> it relates to American politics. But ah, perfect. Um, you know, I've, I've been approached by another, we could say, another wrestling biographer. And we've agreed to work on a particular project. Um, we're Ooh. getting materials together. I, I don't want to identify that other writer or that other project, but that is something. I mean, I, I will say that it's another wrestler from that era. It's somebody Gordienko um, had minor history with. At least they were acquainted. Um, and Kaniski as well. Um, so... Uh, we will be getting into this uh, biography of another uh, old-time wrestler, not a Canadian, but one who had some association with Canada. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into that and you know piecing together another life. And uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to working with this other writer as well because uh, you know we've decided to take a chronological approach. I'll try to piece you know, a certain period of his life together. Uh, he will try to, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a different experience. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to that, and I hope that it will speed up the, the writing process considerably too. Well, we'll add that to our list of mysteries to solve this, uh, <laughs> this year of Grappling with Canada. So uh, before I let you go, where can uh, people get in touch with yourself? Um, well, um I'm on Facebook. If you look at Stephen Verrier, I should pop up. Um, also, um, anybody can visit stephenverrier.com. Again, the spelling is V-E-R-R-I-E-R and Stephen with a V. Um, those are probably the easiest ways or... Um, uh, yeah, who knows? Uh those, those are what I would recommend, anyway. Perfect. Well, we'll leave it there. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. This was absolutely a pleasure and, and a great way to start off the uh, season of Grappling with Canada. I couldn't have picked a better uh, subject and a better guest than yourself. Well, I, I appreciate that. And again, I, I enjoy, you know, when I'm out driving around the first of the month, I, I like to talk to my cell phone. I say, Grappling with Canada podcast. And I always look forward to seeing who your next guest is. I guess I don't have to do that uh, January 1st, but I'm looking forward to doing it again in February. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. You are welcome. Now, I've never, ever had breaking news on an episode of Grappling with Canada until this episode. Now, I had had this program all wrapped up, bundled, ready to go honestly days before the release date of naturally january 1st 2022 
That is until I stumbled upon an incredible document that I'm going to explain and go over with you guys right now. So, in my conversation with Steve, we had discussed the exclusion order from the United States issued to George Gordienko over his involvement with the Communist Party in America. Now, very exciting. What I had found is the actual report from the Committee on Un-American Activities. This was their annual report for the year 1960, which was released in 1961. And what it does is really corroborate and expand upon the details that we had in my conversation with Steve in regards to what happened from the U.S. Department of Un-American Activities point of view in regards to George Gordienko. So I'm going to read this. It's absolutely fascinating. To be quite honest, I was shocked reading it. So I'm going to read this to you guys. I'm also going to be putting a copy of this up on the Instagram page as well as the uh, historical Canadian professional wrestling page on Facebook. So once again, uh, professional or sorry, Canadian professional wrestling history Facebook group is going to be on there as well as on Instagram. I'll probably put it on Twitter as well, but for sure those two sources uh, maybe a couple days after this episode releases, it's going to be up on there. Come look at this thing. It's mind-blowing. Uh, again, I had to go back and redo you know, the entire ending of the program because this is something that I just simply could not sit on, and I was absolutely over the moon, blown away to be able to find it. So we are going to get into this right now. Now, this section of the report is titled Ruth Lois Gordienko, and it reads, Mrs. Ruth Lois Gordienko, a witness on June 25th, was a resident of North Minneapolis and had been a dedicated member of the Communist Party of the United States during 1948 and 1949 and also of the Communist Party of Canada in 1950. Mrs. Gordienko broke with the party over the issue of the Korean War. Following her return to the party, or to the United States in 1950, she ceased all party activities, but did not give notice or resign from the party formally. In 1952, she agreed to act as an undercover contact for the FBI on certain Communist Front activities. Mrs. Gordienko had become a communist through her former husband, George Gordienko, a professional wrestler and Canadian communist, who came to the United States on a work visa and later became a pre-medical student at the University of Minnesota. Part of the witness's indoctrination included attendance with her husband at the Marxist Socialist Club on the campus of the University of Minnesota. The purpose of this quote-unquote communist front organization, according to Ms. Gordienko, was to interest young people into looking into communism, hoping to eventually recruit them. The Marxist Study Club was under the description of one Kenneth Tilson, a University of Minnesota law student, quote-unquote, known on campus as a Communist Party spokesman, whom she knew, in fact, to be a party member. 
operating behind a reformist facade in discussions on the Negro question, agrimony theories, etc., the Marxist Compass Club never advertised itself as communist. Following one year's attendance at these club meetings, Mrs. Gordienko, though not a student at the university, enrolled at the Communist Party through Kenneth Tilson and was assigned to its University Women's Club, which was directed by Tilson's wife, Rachel. The club, made up of wives of the University of Minnesota students, was one of four party clubs on campus. In addition to her duty, would become fully knowledgeable about Marxist-Leninist theories, the witness had to distribute property and party literature throughout the student housing area. She testified that one of the four cells on campus was a secret, quote-unquote, professional cell, consisting of professors and assistant professors who were, quote, highly protected from exposure. Mrs. Gordienko became aware of the existence of this club in 1948 through Rose Tilston Renaud, who managed the party's bookstore and who was later the party's principal executive officer for the Minnesota Dakotas District. In the area of party youth activities, Mrs. Gordienko's testimony corroborated that of Miss Withrow. Mrs. Gordienko stated that the party's youth had their own separate cells, but following the establishment of the Youth Labor League, Younger communists were, quote, assimilated into the adult cell groups and became, during the switching, I was assigned to the north cell of the Communist Party. The witness was assigned tasks in the north side club as follows, to help organize and recruit members of the Labor Youth League and to infiltrate the National Association for the Achievement of Colored People, which, quote, the Communist Party of Minneapolis wanted to take over. However, not enough party members attended the NAACP election to affect their plan and to pack the meeting and therefore did not take over the leadership, she said. Those persons responsible for this failure were later chastised by the party leadership. Mrs. Gordienko's husband, George, left the University of Minnesota, found employment in a flour mill, and was reassigned as a trade union cell of the Communist Party. He subsequently learned that the U.S. Immigration Services was going to deport him to Canada, his native land, as an undesirable alien. Against the party's wishes, he decided not to fight the pending government action and to return to Canada voluntarily before proceedings were instituted against him. The party, therefore transferred him and his wife to the Communist Party of Canada with a letter written by Carl Ross, the district secretary, to another Mr. Ross, a Canadian party functionary. When the Gordienkos moved to the province of Manitoba in late 1949, they were, quote, immediately accepted into the Communist Party in Canada automatically and were assigned to a cell group in Winnipeg. Shortly thereafter, they were reassigned to the role of, quote, sleepers. That is, they were to disassociate themselves from, quote, any members of the party, even on a personal level, and then assimilate within society, making the complete break from the party, she recalled. The purpose of this maneuver, she said, 
was to provide the party with the second string leadership of the province of Manitoba, which would take over immediately the Communist Party apparatus on an underground basis if the Canadian government were to remove leaders from their activities in directors. In such an eventuality, she remarked, her husband was to assume the function of educational director while she would administer the party's financial reports. The witness remained in Canada during the year 1950, returning to the United States in 1951 as a result of her disenchantment with the party line on the Korean War, which in effect that they were trying to subjugate war on the Korean people. Mrs. Gordienko held that, quote, the American government had gone to assist the Koreans in holding the freedom that they had. However, when she expressed these beliefs, Mr. Gordienko criticized her by stating, you are nothing but a damn capitalist. The witness returned to Minneapolis following this episode. She informed the committee that while this incident precipitated her withdrawal from the party affairs, two other prior factors had contributed to her defection. First of all, and this is very important, according to her, naturally, first of all, the one reservation I had, which I did not voice, was the fact that I came from a good Christian family. Once I had gotten into the Communist Party, I fully realized that I could not behold Christian values and ideals upon which our nation had been founded, which is the strength of our nation and become a good communist. You can't do both. The second reservation that I had was very startling to me. When I was in discussion with communists, when they discussed how or what would take place in our city when the revolution began, I was told that we would blow up bridges in Minneapolis. We would barricade the streets the mass communication system would be taken over by the Communist Party. For this type of politics, my stomach was weak. During 1951, Mrs. Gordieko was inactive in the Communist movement. And this last paragraph is something that we had discussed, Steve and myself, in the earlier uh, portion of the program, but confirms one of the suspicions that I had. So again, during 1951, Mrs. Gordienko was inactive in the communist movement. Subsequently, however, following a visit to local offices of the FBI, she began working as a federal operative in three party fronts. The American Committee for the Protection of Foreign Borden, the Freedom of the Press Committee, and the Minneapolis Chapter of the American Peace Crusade. She was a board member of the latter group. Ironically, this group was a party front which generated protesting against America's role in the Korean War, the policy which previously had led to Mrs. Gordienko's break with communism. Wow. I know it was kind of a dry read and, you know, government um, letters, notices, whatever, kind of lean that way, but... To find that information this late in the game, thankfully I found it before the uh, episode was, was released, but, and again, getting back to my conversation with Steve Verrier, we're not trying to disparage anybody, but the reality is that the facts are the facts. This was reported to the United States government. This is their official report from, like I said, 1960, released 1961, and further corroborates the information that we had 
in our earlier conversation. So it really just kind of puts everything in a perspective of, of one, how involved George was in the Communist Party activities in Canada, which we established with also Marty Goldstein, and then obviously in America, and two, the fact that his wife, ex-wife, ended up actually working for the federal government. Absolutely incredible. Can't believe I found it. Again, I'm going to be posting pictures of this on the Facebook group as well as on Instagram. So look out for those and read them for yourselves. It's it's all there. It's unbelievable. I, I, I'm over the moon that I found it. So anyways, I'm going to be posting that up for you guys. And I really take, I hope you take the time to uh, look at them and, uh, and read for yourself. And once again, I'm just thrilled that we were able to uncover that uh, little bit of history to further explain events in George Gordiango's life. Now, as we move to the end of the program tonight, I really, really truthfully want to thank Marty Goldstein and Steve Verrier for joining the program tonight. Uh, gentlemen, uh, the knowledge that you guys have not in regards to specifically this subject, but in everything that we've had discussions about and we'll have further discussions about in the future is is absolutely mind-blowing. It was my honor to have you guys on the program. I hope that everybody was able to get out of it what I did from the conversations that I had with those two fine gentlemen. As for myself, I'm very thankful for you, the listener. I guarantee you right now that you're either on your phone, on a tablet, or on a computer, which means you have access to text, email, or phone call, which means you can do me a big favor and recommend Grappling with Canada, either specifically this episode or our prior works to your friends, family, and uh, anybody who you think would be interested in some Canadian history. Make sure that when you are streaming this program on your various podcasting platforms of choice that you go ahead and leave a five-star review and a written review would be very much appreciated. Speaking of five-star reviews, I was left a tremendous one on iTunes from Blair. I might blow the last name, so I apologize. Uh, Pacquio, he says, five stars, a fantastic podcast. Just an absolutely incredible podcast, very in-depth and informative. Grappling with Canada is educational and entertaining. The Taxman always delivers. Thank you very much, Blair. I really, really appreciate that. And the other reason for leaving a five-star review, especially a written one, is also regarding something that I mentioned at the top of the program. And that is in relation to a little bit of controversy that we had stemming from Season 2. Or season one, I should say. So, if you're not familiar, the finale of season one was the story of Pat Patterson, uh, wrestling's first gay superstar. I was very lucky to have the incredible conversation with Bertrand Ebert that I had on that program, where we really went in-depth on the backstory of Pat Patterson Really, his relationship with Louie, which I think is is really one of the most underreported uh, parts of his story, as well as his life in wrestling as a gay man. Unfortunately, there are people who are not as, we'll say, open-minded. And 
further to that, unfortunately, I had uh, quite a few emails uh, criticizing myself for, <sighs> we'll just say criticizing myself for, for glorifying a gay man yeah, is uh, the most succinct way that I can put that. I had some disturbing, I will say, uh, Facebook comments that were left in regards to the program. Uh, thankfully, those are uh, are gone. I'm happy to report. I had some uh, negatively charged comments left on iTunes. I'm glad that those are also removed. Uh, there's really no space in this world for comments like that. So, for everybody who had a lot of positive things to say about that episode, thank you very much. Again, that story I thought was very important because we covered a lot of ground, especially uncovering the truth about what really happened with his relationship with Louie, what really happened with the WWF sex scandal, and Pat's uninvolvement in it. And what really happened with Pat's tenure in the WWE. So if you haven't heard that episode, I highly suggest you go in the archives. Uh, thank you. There's a few people who really uh, went to bat for me on that issue in particular. I can't name you all, but you all are, are uh, you all have my sincerest gratitude for uh, for stepping up for me, for stepping up for Bertrand, and uh, for stepping up for the integrity of this program. Because the reality is, you know, I, I present a program that's factual. I present a program that's fair. You can say whatever you want about me. You can say whatever you want about um, your opinion about the person that I'm covering. The reality is, on these programs, what we discuss is factual events and and you know we we get rid of the innuendo we get rid of the uh she he said she said we get rid of all that all that fluff and what you're left with is a factual and fair representation of the subject matter which we discuss every month on grappling with canada so i apologize for kind of bringing down the end of the episode but Again, it's something that, you know, I've run into a little bit. I kind of thought it would happen with the Pat episode. I didn't think it would happen that bad. However, that is not going to deter me from bringing you guys the stories that matter from the people that matter in professional wrestling history, from the people that matter in Canadian history. And for that, for you guys continuing to stick with me, I'm eternally grateful. And uh, we're going to do some great things this year, especially with our next episode. So, naturally, you can find that episode by subscribing to this program on any podcasting platform of your choice. Once again, whether that's uh, iTunes, GoodPods, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, wherever you buy, sell, trade, barter, or steal your favorite podcast, please remember to leave a five-star review. Please make sure that you follow me on Twitter at 6 underscore podcast. Once again, youtube.com slash C slash 6 Podcast. Please come make sure you subscribe to the channel. Also, 
watch out for the review of the Manscaped products. Once again, I want to mention Manscaped, the fine sponsor of today's episode. Uh, go on to manscaped.com, select the items that you would like to purchase. Use the promo code GWC, you get 20% off your sale and, more importantly, free shipping. You can also find us on Facebook, on the Facebook pages. Uh, Use that wonderful pages search bar on the Facebook machine, everybody's favorite. Uh, Grappling with Canada, come on in and like the page. Uh, Don't forget to join the Canadian Professional Wrestling History Facebook group. As well, you can email me at any time, sixsidepod at gmail.com. I read everything you guys send. You can also help donate to the program to help make this thing what it is and what it can be in the future. Uh, There's various links on the show notes, but you can simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. Uh, You can also use the PayPal link to directly... uh, send a donation to the show also i totally forgot to mention grapplingwithcanada.threadless.com is the official t-shirt store for the podcast uh thank you to everybody who's picked up shirts over the holidays i'm so waiting to see those pictures up in the facebook group and on twitter so if you guys uh, pick up a shirt make sure that you show it off on twitter so i can uh gladly share that around or in the facebook group as well so i can share it around and uh, we can have a lot of fun with that so, for myself, the taxman, for my wonderful guests, Marty Goldstein and Steve Verrier, happy 2022, everybody. I truly hope for the best for everybody. I hope for health. I hope for happiness. Health, both physical and mental, by the way. And I hope that everybody just has a better, better year this year. I know 2021 was very challenging for a lot of us. Uh, myself included. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, to what 2022 brings. And uh, I wish nothing but the best for each and every one of you listening. So, for all that being said, for my guests today, and to all of you, I will leave you as I usually do. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone. <laughs>